0: And the hilarity already ensues. Even as I hit record, there was shit going down. We probably will not put into this podcast. So, hey, bienvenidos, amigos, amigas. Benvenuti, as I say in Italiano. Welcome, 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 dudes, dudettes, players, playerettes, and everybody in between. Welcome to Game of Crimes. We're doing it again, we're we're doing a different format this time. In fact, what mm-hmm. we got is we're going to bring in some of our guests a little earlier than we normally do, as you guys have been seeing what we're doing. And then, you know, to make that work, you know, one of the things I probably ought to do, Murph, Would. is I probably ought to have the template up. I've got our small town police <laughs> blotter stories ready, but I need to have the template up because at my age, I can't remember shit. But I do remember one thing. We got the Sarge on with us. So before we get in too far, we'll just say real quickly, hello to Sarge Patrick Hold on. and a fine Irish name.
1: O'Connell. Hey,
0: did I say O'Connell or O'Donnell? It should be
1: O'Donnell, but Uh, it's O'Connell
0: now. Your name has been changed.
1: (laughs) My mom won't be happy, but yeah, sure. It's O'Donnell. (laughs) Thanks for having me.
2: Um, It's a pleasure to have you on here, brother. Thank you for joining us. This was a very short notice thing, too. It's uh, been wanting to get you on here for a while, and it just kind of worked out for this week.
0: Yeah, it did. And again, you know, you say that now, but just wait till this thing is over. So, um, (laughs) you know, we'll we'll see if you thank us here at the end. So, hey, guys, what we're going to do is a little bit. Hey, let me just do some quick housekeeping because now that I have the script up, that's what it says. So, hey, just head on over to Apple and Spotify. Hit those five stars. One, two, three, four, five. Uno, dos, tres, cuatro, cinco. Or as I say in farsi, yecto se har pan. That is uh, they don't say no that in farcy. Farcy.
2: They say, don't talk it, shit.
0: That's yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, you can do that on Ichini San Yido if you do it, you want to do it in Japanese. So um, head on over, hit those five stars for us. Also head on over to our website, GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. And if you think we're going to put, be putting up some books, well, when we talk to this next guy, when we talk to the Sarge, we're, we're going to be talking about some books. This is going to be a little bit different episode than what we did, but it's going to be right spot on in terms of what we always address. So head on over there. Also follow us on that thing they call the social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Hey, but Patrick, I know where you got to be. You got to be on this podcast, but Murph knows where else everybody has to be. So Murph, where do they got to be? Where do they got to be one more time? Where do you got to be?
2: You got to come on over on Patreon. Check us out over there. Game of Crimes. See what we've got. We've got content that uh, you might get a little taste of it. Uh, In December, we're thinking about just maybe uh, throwing some stuff out there to see what you think about it. But stuff that's that's serious, stuff that's funny. We have a, uh, at the highest level, we have a monthly live stream. We've got an episode called You Can't Make This Shit Up. 199. What's Your Emergency? We have a QA. Murph,
0: Murph, please. (laughs) People will be dialing. He said that one time, Pat, Sergeant Patrick. He said we're talking one time. He goes, Yeah, yeah, we got to do this thing called one one, or one nine nine. No, nine one one. That's why nobody ever showed up to your house to put your fire out, Murph. You kept calling the wrong number.
2: (laughs) Yeah, but that and that's the kind of fun we have there. I mean, you guys know we're gonna have some fun no matter what we're doing here. So just come over and check us out.
0: Yeah, and the way you check us out is go to patreon.com slash game of crimes. That's Patreon patreon.com slash game of crimes here's how to order as billy mays used to say so just head on over there and have some fun and if you just feel like doing a quick pause for the cause hit paypal.com use our email game of crimes podcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash game of crimes whatever it makes it easier for you to support the show and help us bring you more exciting content but Remember, folks, this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the story seriously. But, Murph, what's the rule?
2: But you know it already. We never take ourselves serious.
0: And so, Patrick, to show you how we don't take ourselves seriously, we need to tell you what time it is. Murph, what time it is?
2: You know what time it is? It's time for... for...
0: Small Town Small Police, police Plotter So, Sarge, you get to come in with this. I think this is one of your cases you may have cracked. So, (laughs) this happened in Clausen. I have no idea where. A concerned neighbor living in an apartment along Maple Road, just west of Livernoy Road, called police after hearing what she thought was a domestic violence issue. The neighbor, police said, thought she could hear a female yelling, stop and no, and possible hitting. Police arrived and learned that the boyfriend...
1: I know where this is going. Wasn't... <laughs> wasn't I know where this is going. Wasn't,
0: wasn't beating her. He just wouldn't stop farting. And the oh. girlfriend kept yelling at him, to okay. stop, police cleared the scene uh, expeditiously, according to the paper. I Colin has met. <laughs> That's it was how I been. thought it was going. Well, I, I didn't read the headline, though. No, I know what you guys are thinking, you dirty old bastards. <laughs> Parting yep. boyfriend causes neighbors to call police. That was the headline. If I read that, it would have taken the punchline away. Oh,
2: man. Ew.
0: No, but here, Murph, this next story is right up your alley, though. All right. I guarantee you. Is it Florida? No, <laughs> this involves a deputy, though. This involves law enforcement. So um, April 3rd in Park Falls, a 911 call. Reporting a subject who was masturbating in the bar. A park falls officer was dispatched. A deputy assisted.
1: <laughs> <laughs> they don't get paid enough
2: for that. <laughs> I guess spins so what city you're in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm oh you. well hey, it's <laughs> a community service option.
0: <laughs> Define redefines happy ending. Oh, oh my god, there we go.
2: Whoa. That wasn't the Kansas park. thing, was it?
0: No, that that definitely, that's probably a West Virginia thing. Maybe a Wisconsin thing. We're going to have to talk about Wisconsin here in a minute. Okay, so last story here. So this one is in the news. Nathan Wayne Pugh, he's 49. He's a bank robber uh, who tried to rob a Dallas bank. And you know how they caught him? Yeah, He's an idiot. Um, well, yeah, he's an idiot. Guess what? what? The, the the teller at the bank, she was pretty smart. She said, I can't give you money unless I get two forms of ID. So he <laughs> gave her two forms of ID, and now he's doing eight years in prison.
1: <laughs> well, if I may, we had a guy come back the next day after he robbed the bank. <laughs> he, he wasn't wearing a mask. He wasn't, I mean, he just goes to the teller. Hey, give me all your money. She did. He disappeared. The next day, the same exact time, high noon, he comes back, and the teller's like, holy shit, that's, that's the guy who robbed us yesterday. And all my same cops, I was working, and it's like, yeah, we got a call. Same guy's back. And it's like, okay, he just had a seat in the lobby and just sat there. And we're like, uh, <laughs> wh- what's going on? And he, said, he just puts his arms out. Yeah, you can cuff me. Uh, he got six grand. I mean, he didn't get the mother load. Yeah. He owed $6,000. Well, I think it was like 5000 to the dope man. He owed his drug dealer five grand. He says, he's going to kill my family. I didn't have a choice. And he said, I gave the rest of them. Take me to jail.
0: All righty. That's the well, low-hanging fruit. There we go. <laughs> Thus endeth the reading for today, then. PASU yeah. <laughs> Domine Donaeus Requiem. All right. Uh, there you go. See, we add color. We thought this would be a good idea. We just bring the guests in instead of doing just a separate intro. And now we, we subject uh, Sergeant Patrick O'Donnell, which should have been O'Connell if you'd been like, you know, Robin was. Wasn't Robin's name, last name O'Connell? Or what was his name? Uh, the actor who played him in the modern one? can't no, think of it. I think
1: it. it was O'Donnell, actually.
0: O'Donnell? Oh, Chris. Well, maybe. All,
1: maybe. All the cool guys are O'Donnell, just so you know.
0: There yeah, you go. well, and the IRA guys, too. So uh, that's I know that from my friends at uh, New Scotland <laughs> Yard.
1: I don't judge. <laughs> I, I don't judge. <laughs>
0: So as I said, thus endeth the reading for today. Murph popped out momentarily. He, must, I think, he was dying laughing. Either that, or he had to go past gas and didn't want to do it on the podcast.
2: <laughs> well, that one thing about so you said, I think I spit all over my screen here, but laughing. i had to
0: clean hey, up. But that's that's what I heard from somebody. You know, you you know, you've reached that point. You know when you've been married long enough when you can actually fart in front of your wife.
2: <laughs> or, like my oldest son did, he he uh, convinced her that he was going to—I'm not sure they were married at this point, but uh, they were in the bed together and said something, and she covered her head up the covers, and then he pinned her down and let her rip.
1: <laughs> That's what we well, call a Dutch oven. Dutch oven. <laughs> 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 That's what when you're very comfortable with your relationship, you can Dutch oven to your partner. Yes, that's that's lovely.
0: I got Dutch ovened as a rookie in Salina, Kansas. I'm riding with one of the senior officers, and he was what we called a public safety officer. So they would roam. One would roam the north half of town, another one would roam the south half, and then cover across all the beats. And we're driving down the road one day, and he just decides, "Hey, watch this!" And it was these old Ford because they had the Ford station wagons. The the you know they had the Ford LTDs, but that the, because they had extra gear in the back and everything mm. almost looked like an Adam 12 thing anyway we're going mike marshall if you're listening this is about you he ended up becoming deputy chief who knew um we're driving down the road and all of a sudden he just locks because they used to have the child lock on there so he'd lock the windows and then he just farted big time and i'm like dying <laughs> i'm i can't open the door because we're going like 60 miles an hour and i can't roll down the window so it just basically gassed me <laughs>
2: We had, i tell you what, back in the 70s, we had a couple of sergeants. They would eat boiled eggs and they would put um, <coughs> sulfur powder on them. I mean, a fart stinks to start with when you eat a boiled egg. But you put sulfur powder on it; it'll just curl your hair, make it fall out, make your eyes water.
0: Hey, before we get too far into the farts, um, I forgot <laughs> we got to mention one thing. If you guys want to join our Game of Crimes fans page, and Sandy's going to kill us for this, oh. um, you got to you guys just go just go to Facebook and type in Game of Crimes fans. Uh, Sandy Salvato, our favorite mafia queen, she will determine if you are worthy of injury. Basically, if you got a heartbeat and you can answer, even get close to answering a couple questions, we're going to let you in the super secret group that discusses things behind the scenes. That only super secret fans of Game of Crimes gets. So if you want to see what's going on, just go to Facebook, uh, type in Game of Crimes fans, answer a couple questions, and if you're worthy, Sandy Salvato will deem you uh, worthy of entry and let you in. Uh, and, and
2: we're not we're not going to tell the day that we're recording this, but happy birthday to Sandy. Today's her birthday.
0: Yeah, we don't want to disclose personally identifiable information, so uh, she's the like queen. my don't sister me. did to me. I was just telling Patrick this too. I'm pretty paranoid about not putting any of my personal information out there. And what does my sister do? Goes on to the group and says, Happy birthday, Market. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she's yes, listening she right did. now. So <laughs> hey well um. let's we got the, this,
2: I got go to meet ahead. her. She sat in on one of the sessions we were recording.
0: Yep, she did. That. that was one of the things she wanted to do. So she came out. She fully retired, so she decided to come out and visit. So I said, hey, come on in and sit down, and she did, and um, she's sounds. never forgiven me. So <laughs> <laughs> well, and let's get started, and as we do with everybody. So we've got, we've got ourselves uh, a fine Irishman, Patrick O'Donnell. I thought it was O'Connell because I was just thinking too fast. I knew it was right there in the notes, but I said O'Connell, but it is O'Donnell for at least this show. So, uh, Patrick, as we do with everybody, you're up in Wisconsin or you used to be in Wisconsin, but tell us, how did you get started in this thing of ours we call Cosa Nostra? How did you get? Did you just lose a bet, drunk one night, wake up in a prison cell and decided I'd rather be a cop than a prisoner? I mean, how did this start for you?
1: You know, I think it was I went to uh, college you think
0: you went to college? You yeah. don't remember? <laughs> I, would, I, <laughs> I think I went to college. I might have joined the Army, too. I just don't remember.
1: Those were very foggy years, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> My academic uh, career was not sterling, to say the, to say the best. Uh, I worked full-time, and I went to college full-time when I was a youngster. And I got kicked out of college twice, actually. But at- that's UW-Whitewater, University of Wisconsin-Whitewater. So I started out as a music major. I was going to be a high school band
0: director. Same here. Really? Yeah, that was, I got a bachelor's in music education from Fort Hayes State University. Wow. It must be something with police and music.
1: I don't know, but I guess. But I switched majors over to sociology and my minor was criminal justice. I did a internship with Milwaukee County Sheriff's Department back in 86, I think it was or 87 and that changed everything it was like oh my god this is more fun than i've ever had No, see that
0: was it for um, me somebody said why'd you go into police work i said because it was easier to arrest the little shits than it was to teach them
2: (laughs) well now this is the oh my god part because now you've got morgan looking for something oh boy and he's probably going to sing a song or play a skin flute i don't know what he's going to do
1: here (laughs) holy cow
0: I found it. I found it. So this, and I, uh, Patrick can see it, but you see, I don't know if you can see my ring. See the ring there? I see the ring. Has a treble clef on there. Wow. That is my ring, that is my ring from college. So
1: mm-hmm. what instrument did you uh, play?
0: All the low brass, the baritone, floor, trombone, tuba. Okay. Uh, but, I, but I played French horn and uh, trumpet as well, too, but banjo, piano, guitar, so... Banjo. Wow. Still have a banjo. Every time Murph makes me play dueling banjos and he sits around, he goes, you got a purty mouth, boy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I do. Maybe I do. (laughs) (laughs) So what I did was uh, I did finish school, got my degree. They did not have criminal justice as a major back then. Not many colleges did. So sociology was close enough. And minor was criminal justice. And I just started doing the shotgun approach of trying different departments. And I took the test for the city of Milwaukee when I was 26. And that's, it took four years to get on. That was back when everybody wanted to be a cop. I took the written test. There was 2,500 people in this like hall. So yeah, it was, it was tough.
2: But we want to know why you got kicked out of college.
0: Twice, Dude, you can't gloss over stuff like that. So uh, did any of this getting kicked out prevent you from getting that job for those four years?
1: No, not at all. Well, like I said, I was working full time. I was going to school most of the time full time.
0: What were you working? You said you were working. What kind of work were you doing?
1: I worked in grocery stores for since the time I was 16 to the time I graduated from college. I wound up being a night manager at a Piggly Wiggly.
0: I haven't heard that in a while. Yeah. <laughs> that and the, then you got Wawas and the buckies and uh you know all of these other little uh Yeah,
1: roommates. I was the night manager at the Pig and uh I also wanted to have fun. I was a young man and I wanted to go out and have a good time and that thing called studying and books and all that that, that took a backseat to work and the fun stuff. So yeah, but I did wind up graduating. I didn't do anything too crazy to you know. So as you were you, on academic probation or? oh yeah, I was a couple of times.
0: Yeah, so, I might have so, so were all the guys on Animal House too. They were on <laughs> were you on double secret probation <laughs> too? <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe I was, but that's a secret. I can't say.
0: So uh if you want to uh a shameless plug for game of crimes, we just got through reviewing uh based on popular vote, the movie Dirty Harry in our narcometer. And the mayor of the town, Steve, knew it too. We looked at it. He was Dean Wormer in Animal House. We're yep. going, I can't take the guy yes, seriously right. after that. Yeah. yeah.
1: I, that, wow, that's right.
0: Yeah. So uh, a lot of good stuff. So, but um, so when you got on, how big population wise? How big was Milwaukee?
1: Six hundred
0: thousand. Okay, so that was a good size. That's obviously the largest city in uh, Wisconsin.
1: Key wrecked. It's uh, Milwaukee, then the second largest. I think is Madison. Than Racine and Kenosha.
0: Well, so since you're a music guy, you'll know this too. I've always had, uh, always hung out with all the guys who did drum and bugle corps and stuff. And I believe there was a famous one from Wisconsin called the Madison Scouts that always did drum oh, yeah. and bugle corps. They,
1: they do really well. That that's yeah. a high speed uh, drum and bugle corps, absolutely.
0: They're, they're very good. See, Murph's feeling left out because he doesn't have anything to contribute to this part of the conversation.
1: Oh, oh. So you'll just let me know when
2: you finish talking about
0: music. I'll pull out the banjo and you can go back to saying you got a pretty mouth there, boy. Squeal like a pig for me. I got, I <laughs> Obviously, references to uh, – yeah, yeah. I'll go get the banjo. Okay. Um, so, but you when you first got – so you got hired in 86?
1: No, no, no. I did an internship with the Milwaukee County Sheriff's Department. I was still in college. Okay. Hmm. I didn't get on the job till 95. You know, I took, I took the, all the tests and everything when I was 26, got on the list and I didn't get on till I was 30.
2: Wow. So you haven't been retired
1: from law enforcement too long then, huh? No, I've been retired for two years. I did my 25 and I got
0: out. Well, I don't know. We talked to a couple of people in your department. They said they thought you retired like 15 years ago. So.
1: <laughs> some might say that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> some of my bosses,
1: may, some of my recruits. Who knows? Yeah, I I would not doubt that.
0: Yeah, We used to joke a couple of our guys. He says, yeah, he's about to be indicted for theft. He's been stealing paychecks for the last <laughs> two years. You know. Well, let's talk about getting on the, the police department, though. Um, you, after I mean, did you think it was going to happen, or did you go apply other places? Were you going to leave, or why? What kept you in Milwaukee, Wisconsin? Why didn't you go to another state or another um, jurisdiction?
1: I wanted to stay in state, and I didn't want to be a little podunk cop. I didn't want to work in a small department.
0: You mean like Bluefield, West Virginia, or something? <laughs> Thirty-five guys kick your
1: ass. Nothing against smaller departments. Okay, don't everybody hate. But I wanted to, you know, like any young person, you know, you want to go where the action is. You want to go out and have some fun. And I think I got bit with the bug when I interned with the sheriff's department, sheriff's department in Milwaukee. And I'm like, man, this you guys have nothing but fun here. This is just nonstop action. So I'm like, well, yeah, that's where I want to go. But I mean, while I was waiting, you know, I worked as a car salesperson for four years. I bartended. I managed a 24-hour restaurant when I got out of college.
0: Which one? IHOP. Yeah, well, gosh, you know what? That's okay. You would have had my ultimate respect if you had said Waffle House.
1: There you go. (laughs) We don't have Waffle Houses in uh, Wisconsin, no. But you know what we're talking about, right? Oh, yeah, I do. I Uh, do. But I'll tell you this much, 25 years of being, uh, working in the inner city in Milwaukee, I got no more fights in one year working at IHOP on Graveyard Shift. (laughs)
0: Because every drunk, every, look, a couple of my complaints came from people at IHOP, drunks that, you know, hey, what are you doing in my car? Dude, you've passed out. You left your door open. I mean.
1: (laughs) It got so bad I had to hire a bouncer at IHOP
0: oh that's, yeah, that's, you know, that's you know you got street IHop. red <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what do you do i'm a bouncer where i hop yeah.
1: <laughs> i'd also make him bust tables but hey he, his label his his title was bouncer he liked that holy cow
0: that's man so that that prepared you well for your job well you know what it did was
1: i got good at talking to people because after your first couple of fights you're like okay that kind of sucked mm-hmm. and you know you're always going to get nicked or whatever and if I could avoid the fight all day long, I wanted to. And then I sold cars for four years. Well, now I'm talking you into something that you don't want to do because nobody wants to really, you know, part with their hard-earned cash because, tell you what, what a car is the second biggest purchase you're probably going to make. Your house is number one. Then a car is probably the no, second an ex, biggest. I think
0: an ex-wife is like number two. Then Ooh, comes I've a got car. one
1: of those. I've got one of those. <laughs> yeah, don't we all. <laughs> oh, yeah, but... <laughs> Yeah, and so I traded her in, but you know that's another story.
0: But, but now, did you did you trade her? Did you try updating your software? Did you try installing Girlfriend two point yeah. on top of Wife one point
2: oh? you know what that some, happens. Uh,
0: Girlfriend Wife one point then accesses all your bank accounts and drains them as Girlfriend two point is updating. So just yes. let you know.
2: <laughs> you sound like yeah. you've been there, Morgan. Say again. You sound like you've been down that road.
0: No, I I, I saw that joke one time i thought it was really good (laughs) but going but selling cars you know what you're
1: talking people into doing something that they don't want to do no different than being a cop hey you know what i'm going to take you to this really small jail cell where you'll have no freedom you won't even have shoelaces or a belt and you're going to love me and most of the time you know what it worked i had people thanking me as i was putting the handcuffs on
2: that's how you know you've
1: done a good job then. Yep.
0: Hey, thank you for doing this, <laughs> Officer O'Connell. I know it's O'Donnell, but I'm drunk, so I'm going to call you O'Connell.
1: Well, I had a, somebody, yeah, I'm with my cops. I was a sergeant. I arrested somebody and was like, man, that Sergeant O'Donnell is great. It, <laughs> so of course, it spread like wildfire. Hey, Sergeant O'Donnell, how are you doing over there? And I'm like, oh, okay, It tastes like French O'Donnell. You
2: know. It's like that Saturday night skit where the, the guy comes in as a student teacher and he's calling roll because he's been in an inner city school and he, and he calls for Milwaukee.
1: It's <laughs> Blake. Yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I think I know which one you were talking about. So, yes. uh, <clears throat> but real quickly, if we re- re- just go backwards a little bit, um, when you went through the academy, how many people were in your class?
1: There was only 42. Usually there's 60, but for some reason, I got hired because of the crime bill. We got a ton of federal money. We got federal grants. Thank you, Bill Clinton. I, I'm not his biggest fan, but I got hired because of him. We had four academy classes go through in one year, which is unheard of for our organization. So
0: So when you went through, how many officers did that give the Milwaukee PD? There was 42 of us. No, I mean, oh, oh okay. Um, <laughs> what when, you had no officers and they had to wait till the yeah. class graduated. There's a lot of um, pressure on
1: us, a lot, a lot of pressure. Ooh. you guys are our the old.
0: turnover in Milwaukee is <laughs> terrible. We're down to no officers, but don't worry, folks, the public is safe.
1: No, <laughs> it should be 2,000. When I went through the academy, it was at about 1,800, and I think they're down to like 1,400 now. It's terrible.
0: Mm-hmm. So, you go through, so you know, as we ask most people, so. You, it seems like you might have had. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go out on a limb here, and I'm gonna say you might have had an issue in the academy. An
1: issue? I had no issues in the academy. I I didn't say.
0: I didn't say an issue. I said an issue. You said issues. So was there more than one? Did you get any trouble? You get? I mean, you you sound like a guy who probably pulls a joke or two or provokes some things.
1: Actually, you know what? I was pretty vanilla because I was 30 years old. I was one of the oldest guys in that academy. You know, most of these people that were in the academy were like 21, 22 years old. And here I am 30, and there's only one other guy older than me. He was like in his early 40s. He was the old man. He was a parking checker for like 15 years. He did he was like the parking enforcement guy that drove around in a Jeep and wrote out parking tickets. So I, the instructors really didn't key in on me because I was, I was old. I was 30 years
0: old. So we were just fixing a real quick glitch here. Um, But as, as uh, Patrick mentioned, police dog, um, the dog he's dog-sitting decided to be a dog and jumped up on his lap and started <laughs> molesting him. And he was saying, stop. No, we thought the dog was attacking him, but no, he was just farting, like in our story.
2: <laughs> oh, that's rough. Oh,
1: Frankie.
0: Right. Hey, so you were talking about, you, you were the second oldest guy in your class. The oldest guy was like a parking enforcer, but that's why you said you were kind of, I, I can see why you were probably chilling class and not, because you were there to get through it. Right. I mean, it's not like you were young anymore. You'd had your fun, but like, you're now like ready. Hey, let's get this academy over with. I want to get on the job. Oh, absolutely.
1: You know, we were living in Madison at the time, which is a little over an hour away. And for the first couple of months I was commuting going back and forth.
0: On a daily basis, or did they keep you there during the week?
1: No, it was Monday through Friday. And, uh, yeah, I would go home in the evening. You know, it, it was eight to four Monday through Friday. So, you know, I had to be up at, oh, dark 30 to make sure there was no traffic problems. Then I'd get home probably around six o'clock at night.
0: And then on top of that, what about studying and, you know, prepping?
1: Yep. You had to do it.
0: Had all that stuff, huh?
1: Oh yeah. It sucked. That part I did not like. Then I wound up sleeping on a friend's couch. I wound up couch surfing and (laughs) he had this small attic apartment and I'm on this couch and he literally went out boozing every night you know and i would get up at six o'clock in the morning and he was getting home at two thirty in the morning every morning he was up at, and then it was a small apartment he would always make a pizza or microwave something so he'd wake me up and i'm like okay this is miserable <laughs> this is beyond misery i'm too old for this shit yeah. so thankfully we found a house in milwaukee you know, when I was about halfway through the academy, I'm like, yeah, I, I think I'm going to graduate, you know, even though they threaten you all the time that, you know, you're not going to. But I was old enough to kind of see the games that they were playing. And I'm like, yeah, we need to move. So we moved, and then life was a lot better once I had my own house, and the commute was a half an hour.
0: So how long's your academy? Six months. Oh, okay. And then when you got done, so how, what's the process of getting you out onto the main streets of uh, Milwaukee? Uh, What
1: happens is you get assigned to a district station. You go to patrol, and you do six weeks of field training with a field training officer, and then you do another six weeks with a different field training officer, and they try to change the shifts, you know, the people, but you're in the same district. I started out working midnight to 8 on uh, graveyards, and then I went to early power, which was 11 in the morning till 7 in the evening.
0: So what was your favorite shift?
1: Oh, favorite shift. I liked late shift because of the people. There were some really good cops, very high speed, just hard chargers. And there were just, you could learn a ton from them. And, you know, you guys know what it's like. It's the front row seat to the craziest shit on planet earth. And when you were working 11 in the morning till 7 p.m., I mean, you'd still have homicides and crazy stuff go on. but just not at the volume that you do at night. So I enjoyed working late. When Later on, I promoted to sergeant. I did four years on late power, which was seven at night till three in the morning. And that was by far my favorite. Then I got divorced and I had to go day shift so I could get custody, you know, join custody with my kids.
2: That's when I was, when I was in uniform, I worked at seven to three and that was 7 p.m. to 3 a.m. and that oh, was I the best it. shift. I,
1: I would have retired off of that if I could have. Of course, I was a lot younger then too.
0: Yeah. And the other, but the other thing too, is it's kind of weird too, because after a while you just, most everything was designed to be Monday through Friday, eight to five, like banks, you know, and other stuff like that. So you kind of have to, people don't realize when you do this thing called law enforcement, you know, thing of ours, you got to just adjust your daily habits or your routines and stuff. Cause there was, for me, as you am sure with you guys, there's no such thing. It's weekends off all the time. Well, let's plan something for the weekend. I'm not off, you know?
1: See, that's the good thing about late shift. If you have kids you could deprive yourself of sleep and still make the soccer game, still make the band concert. You could still, I did a ton of chaperoning for my kids when they were little, you know, for field trips. And I was like one of the only dads that was doing it. And I'll never forget it. I thought it was great.
2: How did your kids like having you there?
1: You know, they, they didn't give me too much guff. I mean, I remember one time we went into a, how can I put it delicately, not such a great neighborhood. And it was their Spanish trip, field trip, their Spanish class field trip. And, you know, they go to a bakery in a certain part of town, then a restaurant in a certain part of town. And I worked in that part of town. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm seeing everything. You know, it's like 9 o'clock in the morning, but there's two prostitutes on the corner of where we're at. Then there's a kid driving by in a stolen car. You know, I'm seeing everything through cop eyes, and all these dads and moms are looking like, oh, this is such a nice area. And I'm like, oh. we're tripping over hypothermic (laughs) needles. It's not, it's not that
0: nice. So let's talk about, I don't want to get into it yet, but I want to talk about at some point, we're going to talk about this thing you do, uh, cops and writers. You've got a podcast you've been, we were just talking to, you. you just got a pretty healthy book deal, When did the writing bug start for you? Was that while you were on the job, halfway through your job? When did this thing start? We'll get into it later, but I just kind of want to plant the flag. At what point during your career should we start looking for this?
1: When I went day shift, when I was going through uh, my divorce, I had to go day shift, like, like I said before, so I could have my kids, you know, 50, 50. And I told you before that I sold cars for a living for four years. Well, For years and years and years, when somebody would buy a car, like a friend or family, they brought me along with them. And it's like, hey, help us out. Then finally, somebody's like, why don't you write a book about that? And I'm like, you know what? I think I will. So, I mean, it's a glorified PDF. It's nothing spectacular. But I threw it up on Amazon myself. And I'm like, okay, that's kind of cool. And then I went through the bad divorce. So I wrote a book about divorce from a guy's point of view, from the dad's point of view.
0: Now, did you write it from a dad's or a cop's dad point of view? Well,
1: it couldn't help but have the cop influence, you know, and actually the, my biggest audience for that was females were women. You know, I thought I didn't do my market research, I guess is the best way to put it. And guys don't read books. a lot. Women read a lot more books than men do a lot more. And when it comes to self-help stuff like that, it's definitely more women. So my audience was women that they kind of want to see what the enemy was up to. So That's a nice (laughs) way to put it. That's that's what I was doing. So I, uh, I did that. And then a fellow sergeant, a friend of mine, was working on his PhD, and he wrote a post-apocalyptic book. We were talking about self-publishing and I'm like, I could do that too. So I started doing that. And then I started the Cops and Writers Facebook group and there was a lot of clamor for, hey, we want a police procedural for writers. So that's how that started.
0: Hey, So quick question about that. You, you talked about, you said writing for the enemy. Women are not the enemy now, Patrick. I never. Said you that. said they, they wanted to see what the enemy was doing. I'll
1: <laughs> oh, <there> you <laughs> oh, see. You're twisting no, no, my no. words. You're twisting uh, my words. That's what. Stop that's twisting. what you wanted to say. And I'm just
0: helping you. Helping you. No. Um, so when you, when they wanted to see what, they, did you get comments back though saying, "Gee, I mean, did it provide any insight, or were they more just interested in what did the guys think? I mean, did it help in any way? Was it? I assume it was like cathartic for you, but did it help? women, did it, did you get any feedback that, Hey, it stopped, you know, we, we were going to get divorced, but now I understand anything like that.
1: I didn't have any like life-changing stories, but I did have some feedback. You know, I had some uh, parts of this where it's like, okay, this is the best way to tell your kids you're going to get divorced. Some best practices, you know, there's nothing, I tried to keep it as least toxic as possible. You know, it's like, Oh, I hate my ex. You know, there's none of that. I didn't want that. That's, that doesn't do anybody any good. You know, it's just like, okay, you're going to get divorced. This is happening. How do you lead the best life possible for your children? You know, and can you do this as amicably as possible? I mean, there's all different degrees of divorce. Some are, you know, you know, fighting tooth and nail. And some are like, I have a buddy that him and his wife got divorced. They used the same attorney. They went out to lunch after the court date. Yeah. Just, <laughs> they just knew that they could not be together. They had a kid together and they, they're still raising her just fantastically. You know, it just, they, they were the model of, you know, and she wasn't a vulture and went after his pension.
0: Wow. That sounds like a fiction book. Yeah. Tell me about <laughs> it. <laughs> Yeah, that didn't happen to me. Spoiler what? alert. Spoiler <laughs> alert. Well, let, let's go back into the law enforcement stuff because as that's why I wanted to kind of plant this flag right now so we can bring it around later because the books are going to become obviously an important thing. But when did you start this Cops and Writers group? Was that while you, obviously while you were still on the job, like it was halfway through your career? About what point into your career did this all start?
1: It was towards the end. Um, I Cops and Writers have been around for a couple of years. No, nah. Oh, gosh. I, more than that, probably four years. I started it when I saw the end was near. And a lot of people, you know, in law enforcement, as you guys can attest to, seeing friends and colleagues, it's like they retire and they just kind of wander around aimlessly. They become the greeter at Walmart. Hey, hey, if that's your thing, knock yourself out, you know.
0: Hey, but you know what? I had some guys say that that's that that's all they were going to do for a while because you know what? You can't take your work home with you. Nobody really calls you in on your days off. It's like it's just hey, how you doing? You know, and it's it's a great way to decompress for a while till you figure out what you want to do.
1: Right? You know, and again, it's like okay, what do I want to do when I grow up? So I started writing, and I was very immersed into these writing communities. I started speaking at conferences. I spoke at, uh, one of my old lieutenants is a professor, at one of the local colleges. So I went and spoke to his class doing things like that. I mean, it's fun to ride motorcycles and, you know, smoke cigars and talk to your buddies, but that can only take you so far. You know, it, you know, I'm 58 years old. doesn't
0: put much money in the bank account.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And we could circle back to the ex-wife, you know, getting some of your pension. It's kind of a necessity. Yeah.
0: Too. When your income drops precipitously, you've got to figure out another, as they say in the business revenue stream, what's, how do I monetize this, this hobby of mine, you know, and turn it into something. <laughs> yeah. Hey, well, let's go, let's go back though into your career because I wanted to start doing that. Like I said, so we could bring it forward a little bit later, but um, as you're going through Did it strike you in your mind as you were working the mean streets of Milwaukee? I mean, like say during your first five years that these were going to be stories you were going to do something with later, or is it more just, you know, Hey, this, we, we, we have to get together, drink a beer, have a choir practice, you know, and we tell stories. Did this writing thing at all, even remotely factor into your mind back then?
1: Not at all. You know, just my first week on the job, I'm working midnight to eight with my FTO And don't
0: don't tell me you had a guy, a naked guy on meth, hopping through your car.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, we got called for a stabbing seven o'clock in the morning. And my, my FTL looks at me and says, who's stabbing people at seven in the morning? This is nuts. So they give a description of dude that did the stabbing and we pull up, we had a patrol wagon. We were in the wagon and sure as shit, here comes dude with knife in his hand, covered in blood running like straight at me no shit yeah i've got less than a week on the job on the street so i draw down on him i'm like holy shit i'm gonna have to smoke this guy and i haven't even been out for like a couple days Uh and i'm like well that was a quick career but yeah i think he could sense that i was probably more scared than him my eyes were like saucers and he actually dropped the knife fell down onto his stomach and let my partner hook him up and my fto looked at me and says just so you know This isn't usually how it works. Usually they're (laughs) running the other direction when they see the police car. He said, or he said, whatever. But sure enough, we hook him up. We go there. Dude's got two IVs in him, and the paramedics are pumping the bags. They're like, okay, that's a bad sign. So they get him to the hospital. Long story short, he dies after he crashes three times. The doctor does open heart massage. And I'm standing at this guy's feet in the trauma room. You know, so I'm like, oh, that's what the lungs look like. Oh, that's what the heart looks like. Okay, this is kind of cool. So he's pumping away. I got home and I'm like, this is the best job ever. Is this every day? Man, <laughs> I, they pay me for this? Wow. Well, it was
2: just that it was that command presence you had when you jumped out of the car, and he's like, oh shit, there's Mister, o- there's Mister O'Connell. I
0: guess I better give it up. Uh, Mister O'Donnell, Steve <laughs> O'Donnell. <laughs> one nine nine brother (laughs) one nine nine i i knew it i was just messing with him you did it because you forgot already
2: (laughs) i'm looking at his name on the screen
0: (laughs) uh well the reason i said that is because we had another guy on our podcast it was actually a friend of murph but i got the recommendation from a friend it's a what's the largest lsd um factory basically lab in the u.s and it was in a missile silo and guy hargraves yeah i started on uh, dallas pd and then you know blah blah he started to gloss over it we said wait a minute back up come to find out like his first week on the job he's out there a naked guy on meth hops through his patrol car you know it's like (laughs) we were just gonna pass all this no the good stories are there so before we go too much blah 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 and we gloss over stuff let's talk about like maybe one of the weirdest calls you had in milwaukee
1: well, that was one of them. You know, that was a little bit different. This was after Jeffrey Dahmer. You know, I got on 95 and Dahmer was like 92, 93, somewhere in that ballpark. So everybody was thinking, every house I went into, I checked the refrigerator. I'll tell you that much. You know, it's like, if we we're searching anything, the first place I go to is the refrigerator, Thinking if a head was going to pop out at me or not. Jeez. But <laughs> as far as strange calls go, I mean working in a big city anywhere at night, you know, you're, it's just, which one is crazier than the other? You know, I've God, I've been to decapitations. I've been to, oh, you know, any kind of murder you can think of suicides. De-
2: decapitation murder.
1: No, this wasn't a, it was a traffic accident, that one. And, but he, uh, we found a suicide note, so he actually killed himself and he was on a little honda like cr was it cr something or other it was a real low to the ground and there was a full size ford bronco and he you know his face went right into the bumper jeez and he was going the crash reconstruction people said he was going over 100 mm. and the uh, bronco was stationary it was parked man oh man so his head was in the bad back. Bad stuff
0: like – as a trooper, I can tell you, you work bad stuff like that because um, that's why you see a lot – if you guys will look on the back of a lot of the truck tractor semi-trailers, the semi-trailers now are supposed to have that bar to prevent the underride collisions. And that's that's oh. one of the reasons the uh, 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 federal DOT and the Interstate Commerce Commission, that came out with this stuff just because of stuff like that. The cars would rear-end trucks, but there was nothing to stop them from going under that far, and that's what you would get is you'd get the head injuries or the decapitations.
1: The the probably one of the bigger ones was I went to a triple homicide. I was off probation. I'm with a senior officer and there is a bar shooting. Now we were inside with an arrest, like right out of the bat. And we we're waiting to get our report signed and we could hear our, our fellow officers saying, Hey, you know, this is bad. You know, you could hear the gunfire in the background. It's like, well, we need to get going. So eventually we hauled ass down there. And as we were getting there, there was four cops going up a gangway behind the bar. And one guy almost got his head blown off. He, by the grace of God, he's, he sees like half of the dude coming from behind the building. He's like, let me see your hands. Let me see your hands. So the guy shows him his left hand. He didn't know he had a 357 in the other hand. So he walks up and bad guy starts popping rounds. He dives, the guy who was on point dives onto the ground and the bullet hits where oh, his man. head was. Wow. So then another bullet hits the brick building next to it. It fragments. It's so either the brick or the fragmented bullet strikes an officer like two down from, they had like a little train going, blows her glasses up. She starts pounding rounds downrange. And all this is going on as we're running inside the bar. We run inside the bar, and I almost trip over a dead body that was on the curb. My partner didn't see it. So we got the dead body there. The shooting's going on outside. They're shooting in the back of the room, and me and my partner are going in there, and there's a dead guy laying on the ground, still with his Budweiser in his hand.
2: Well, priorities.
1: And then I I go around to clear the bar behind the bar. There's a bartender. He's like in the fetal position and he's got a couple of holes in his head. He's, he's way dead. And I've never seen that many casings ever in my life. I thought it was like on a a beach with like shells. It was way over a hundred casings. Wow. So (laughs) we're like, oh shit, there's two cops that were by the dartboard and they're back to back, kind of like the Charlie's Angels (laughs) fricking pose. And they were froze. They, they were completely frozen. So we're like, well, we got to clear this place. So my partner and I cleared the entire bar, just found blood trails and casings. And I mean, for a little bit there, we're like, well, holy shit, you know, what's next? You know, so, and of course, you know, half of it was dark, you know, blah, blah, blah. So we get done with all that. The guy who was shooting at the cops, he ran out of bullets. He was trying to go over a fence. One guy that we used to call Swede, he was this big, um, Marine guy that was like six foot three, two hundred and fifty pounds.
0: Was that the same guy who played in Heartbreak Ridge with Clint Eastwood? Yeah. How did you know?
1: <laughs> sweet, yes. sweet. He, sweet. <laughs> That's my friend. I used to do a drinking game to that. I not to sidetrack too much, but oh my god. Whenever somebody would say marine, gunny, highway, or fuck, you had to drink. <laughs> if we made it to Grenada, we were doing good. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> But anyways, back to the story. <laughs> yeah, Swede grabbed him and pile drived him into the ground and broke his collarbone. But he didn't he didn't know that he was armed. He didn't know. It was like yeah. half blocked down. And the gun popped out of his waistband when he pile drived him. Wow. So so now we're getting all the posse together. Everyone's taking a breath. And the dispatcher's like, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but we got a call for a sniper in the building next to you guys. So we all had to posse up and go up on the roof of the house of the building next to us.
2: Was it? Was there a sniper nope. there? Nope. So what was the motive for all the shootings?
1: Uh underage kids that were like 19, 20 years old. They came in there like 15 minutes before bar time. They wanted to be served. And the bartender was like, even if you were legal, I'm not gonna serve you, so I'm getting ready to close. Okay, we'll be back. They went back, they had Mac. I was 10s, about to ask Bluezies. what it had to
0: be something like that. Yeah. Damn. yeah.
1: They sprayed the shit out of that place. Were they ga- you know, Were I, they,
0: uh, Were they? they in a gang or what?
1: Yeah, they were gangsters. Yeah. And the, the sad part about it was the guy with the Budweiser, he just got, he was a working class Joe that happened to live in a bad neighborhood that was just stopping in for a beer before he went home. You know, and a bartender, he's not making millions of dollars. You know, and then this other person, he was just a patron. That's what fries my ass. When it comes to it's like well, criminal justice reform and all that, and I'm like, I'm not saying everything's perfect, but with all these people doing podcasts and shows you know with all these reformed criminals, they never ever have a victim of a crime anywhere mm-hmm.
0: except game of crimes episode sixty i and we've we actually we brought i'll tell you one of the most impactful episodes we did was a victim of human trafficking. She was kidnapped oh, Natasha yeah, Herzog, yeah, yeah. Uh, I heard that. kidnapped yep. right off the steps. And that's why I said yep. you don't get an appreciation for, and I'll tell you what, that episode alone changed actually a little paradigm shift for me about how I view women that were involved in prostitution or some of the other stuff. Because once you listen to her and you realize that some of these women that are in adult films or stuff like that, you go back and look at their background. Many of them were victimized in such a bad way because now that's the only life they knew. Um uh, just terrible. I mean, yeah, you're right. So that was my beef with some of these podcasts is that they want to they wanna profit off the misery of others, but yet they don't want to really tell the victim story. Who's the victim here? We had Christy Schiller on, who does Canine for Cops. Her story about the way she got attacked, you know, nearly killed herself. I mean, and the other thing, though, too, you know, the other victims we talked to, we talked to a lot of cops who have been shot at and wounded you know, and been been seriously injured in the line of fire. These folks are victims, too. And until you hear their stories, you don't get a feeling for what it takes to do the job.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with you. You know, it, just looking into the eyes of a real victim of a crime, because, mm-hmm. you know, when you work in the inner city anywhere, a lot of it is one criminal doing something bad to another criminal. And it, it's kind of hard to feel bad for them. But every now and then, you, we'd say we'd stumble across a real victim of a crime, and it's like your heart goes out to them yeah. you know it's terrible they're changed forever there's
2: financially they can't get out of their circumstances there and it's they're just stuck
0: hey let's circle back for a second to the, let's not leave the bar shooting too soon so uh, what was the follow up from that so because obviously because you know they're gangsters and stuff it's you obviously caught them later so what's the what's what's the rest of the story there the rest of
1: the story was you know that was all night, and then, when we were there, the local hospital called and said, "Hey, uh, we got a call for a sh- gunshot victim. You know maybe it has something to do with you guys. It's like, all right, so my partner and I boogie on down to the hospital, and the guy's being a complete asshole one of his <laughs> one of his buddies shot him in the ass <laughs> <laughs> friendly fire." <laughs> Yeah, so of course, he looked like Superman laying down on the cot with his arm. <laughs> like, so, you know, he wouldn't give the hospital what his name was. He was just being an uncooperative asshole. Hmm. So, That's why he got you know, shot in the and, ass. Well, he, I, I told the detective he got shot in the brains. <laughs> yeah.
0: Fortunately, they didn't hit anything. He took an x-ray of his head and nothing was there.
1: That's right. That's funny. So what happened was a lot of follow-up. You know, being in patrol, I guess it's it depends on how you look at it. It's like, okay, that was just one night. On to the next. You know, the Detective Bureau would be saddled with solving said crime, you know, the Homicide Bureau. And they did, but it took a while because it was connecting the dots with all these different gangsters. And they found out who it was.
0: Was it a homegrown gang or a national gang? What kind of gang was it?
1: Uh, I think they were GD, Gangster Disciples. So That's, that's out of the, Chicago, like, wasn't it? Yeah, they started in Chicago. That's kind of like the L.A. version of the um, Crips. Yeah. Yep, same difference. Unbelievable. Same idiots. But, um, yeah, we did that, and there was a giant choir practice after that because you have all these guys and and gals in blue uniform pants and crusty white T-shirts back then. (laughs) And we had, like, tabletop things. You know, the sergeants were there and all the cops, and it's like, okay, this pitcher beer is the bar. These pieces of popcorn are the cops going up the gangway. Everyone's reliving it, and you know, it just, oh, it was hilarious. Oh, my gosh, that
0: was so much fun.
2: But, you know, you, you've got to have those decompression times like that because the oh, crap yeah. you see out Absolutely. there on a daily basis, you got to have a way to release that crap.
0: Hey, Murph, who did we just talk to that was involved or was working the same time Dahmer happened?
2: Uh remember because they said
0: weren't they working um they were working in an adjoining district and the ones who had contact with Dahmer, they sent him back. Who was that? Was it Tim Stommel? Does that name ring a bell? Tim Stommel? It does not. We gotta go back and think hey. about it. He may oh gosh. It's just hitting me now because we just recorded Tim. One of the one of the folks we just talked to Was I don't know if they were Milwaukee people, but we were talking about the Dahmer case, just like you said. You you said it happened in ninety five, so you're checking that. They were working at the time it happened, and they talked about how the morale took a hit, um, and how you know it was just it was the maybe maybe it wasn't Milwaukee. Trying to think who it was, but now it had to be because they were talking about how you were just going call to call to call, and so when you've got somebody that looks like they're old enough, it's like they've got a responsible adult. It's like you had homicides and rapes, you know, and, and assaults going on, and it's like we've got one drunk person. I got to think of who that is, man.
2: I think it was Tim because I think he was, then he started, as a, he started as a cop up north somewhere. He grew up in a small town and they went to a big city and got on as a police officer and then eventually joined DEA. Uh, in his episode, for, for our listeners, his episode hasn't come out yet. It won't be out for a couple more weeks.
1: So he was a Milwaukee cop for a while, then went to the DEA? I can't
2: remember if he was Milwaukee or...
0: You know what I'm going to do? Know, so uh, through Wisconsin. the magic of Al Gore's amazing internet, see, I bring up... Um, <laughs> yes, it was. Tim Stommel was a Milwaukee... You know why you didn't know him? Because he was only on Milwaukee from February of 90 to February of 93 before he went to Coral Springs. He left two years before you started. He was working the night in an enjoying district when oh. they found the, okay. the, the first body of Dom- with Dahmer.
1: Ah, well, I interviewed Annie Schwartz, who was the reporter that broke the story. You guys should interview her. She's great. She is fabulous. And she wrote a book called Monster. They, they just
0: turned that into a series on Netflix, right, or something?
1: Yeah, she had something to do with it, but the Netflix series is not based on fact. Yeah, I know that's hard to believe that are, Hollywood are actually do something like Are you telling me that, Narcos but...
0: isn't based on <laughs> fact? <laughs>
2: No, it's all true. It's all true. If you like it, it's all true. If you don't like it, it's all Hollywood.
0: Well, I do like it. So that means you did throw somebody out of a helicopter. <laughs>
1: I was just disturbed by the cat. Don't tell your cats about what no, happened No, no, no. To the cat Actually, Murph, market. believe it or
0: not, I was going to tell you about that too. Got a message on Facebook, uh, Facebook Messenger this morning. One of the people off the fan page they were listening. They go, "I just mm-hmm. want to know, is it true about the cat?" I said, "No, it was not true about the cat. <laughs> cat died of natural causes. Was not <laughs> was not felonous, yeah. no Was not felonly, feloniously <laughs> wiped out. You know, wiped out. So, uh,
2: nope." No, But, you know, one thing we all did learn is that Hollywood will never let the truth get in the way of a good story.
0: Well, hey, let's talk about Absolutely. that for a minute. Um, Even though it happened a couple years after, what was the effect of Dahmer and the investigation and finding out all of this stuff? How did, did that translate into anything that affected you when you got on?
1: Yes. Um I got on 95 and I think Dahmer was 92.
0: 93, I think so.
1: 93. Yeah. 93, maybe. So like I said before I met the cops and the detectives that dealt with Dahmer and the one thing that really popped out was the two cops that got fired had no due process zero you know it was all you know it's like oh my god this is terrible boom you're fired well obviously they sued got their jobs back with back pay and a huge settlement which they deserved you know it's like There is a certain process. You can't just blanketly start firing people. And this chief just, you know, oh, boy, you know, I've got to do this because the mayor is telling me I have to do this. So if you were in any kind of trouble, they made sure that they were following the rules. You know, Internal Affairs is doing everything by the numbers because it's like, look what happened here. So that did and it, some And it backlash. was
0: 91. I was just pulling that up, too. So he was uh, he was apprehended November 20, or, uh, yeah, in 1991. So from 78 to 91. But, yeah, because that's the other thing, too, is um, if you had to go back and do it again, it's kind of like, look, I'm from the Midwest, and a lot of times you don't want to think bad things like that happen in the Midwest, and we thought that, too, until we had Dennis Rader and BTK, you know, until oh, you yeah, have people yeah. like Jeffrey Dahmer and stuff, but... But, let's talk about that for a second, like the shift that these were guys working in the district. I mean, it just being so busy on some of those nights, I mean, you're just like call to call to call to call. There is no stopping to have, hey, let's have a nice thirty minute you know code seven or a you know a lunch break or whatever else. It's like you're lucky if you got you feel like one of those uh Amazon drivers that has to pee in a bottle you know to keep delivering packages
1: <laughs> No you know when I first started midnight to eight, it wasn't uncommon to be 30, 40, 50 hitches in the hole, which means it's 30, 40, 50 assignments that you're behind. And obviously it's by priority. So the barking dog call can wait because you just got the shooting, you know, et cetera. So the dispatcher was always looking to, we called it banging you. Hey, the dispatcher's banging you. You got to, you know, you got to go, you got to go. You know, it's like even something that is, how can I put it, very stressful for a cop that you would like to decompress. There's no time. And it's like, on to the next. And you don't get next.
0: any time to process stuff. You've been at a bad scene. You got a kid killed or you got a messy domestic violence. Doesn't it's matter. like like you say, you're on to no. the next thing.
1: Yes, absolutely. But, you know, as far as the Dahmer stuff goes, I know the two detectives that interrogated him. You know, and back then, the rooms were about as... They were glorified uh, room closets, more or less. And it was Pat Kennedy and Michael Dubis that were the two detectives. Pat Kennedy was this gigantic, just big guy who could just talk a mile a minute. And Mike Dubis was a very polished, very intelligent detective. They were both in homicide. And they're locked in with him for like 12, 16 hours for a couple of days interviewing this guy. And later on, if one of these guys had an interrogation or interview for something that I'd bring in, I would listen outside the door because I'm like, man, these guys are good. You know what I mean? So I, I remember I brought a guy in for homicide and Kennedy walks in, And, you know, I handcuffed the guy to the wall, like a big brass ring in a table and chairs. And Kennedy goes in there, throws him his keys, and says, get that handcuff off your wrist. Come on, we need to talk about this. And I'm just like, in five minutes, he had this guy just spilling his guts. There was no yelling. There was no screaming. There was just... Man, well, speaking of good. writing
0: fiction and stuff, people write fiction or you watch it on TV a lot of times, they think the best way to c- get a confession out of somebody is to yell and scream at them like, son, you're going to get the needle. You're going to die. Tell me what happens. <laughs> well, wait a minute, Skippy. If I tell you what happens, I'm going to get the needle and still die, right? So why are you yelling and screaming mm-hmm. at me?
1: <laughs> well, one of my favorite, I think it was Chicago PD or Hawaii 5 These are shows that my wife likes. And there's a female detective. Interrogating this guy and he's handcuffed behind his back and this sitting in a chair and she's shoving this gun and her gun in this guy's mouth and first off, you never go in there armed you know, when you do an interview and second of all, I'm like, he can't talk I'm like yelling at the TV, he can't talk you have his gun in his mouth there's there's a Glock in the poor man's mouth come on now I think he just said he did it
0: yeah, he just did it, that's what I heard what'd you hear? (laughs) I, you know, I, I, I gotta tell you though. I mean, this is a, I, we had a philosophical discussion with one of my friends one night because we we talked about, you know, you see some of the stuff on TV, what would you do? And it's kind of what would you do if? And the question was, what what would you do if if you walked in and somebody was doing that exact same thing? That was the scenario. If they had a gun in somebody's mouth who's, you know, a suspect in a crime or whatever, but they're obviously not armed. They've been searched, and you got a gun in their mouth, what are you gonna do? And this might sound cold and callous. I said, I'd fucking arrest him. And I'll tell you why. I mean, it's like you, we cut a lot of slack to cops to do stuff, but if I walk in and you got a gun in somebody's mouth, they do it on TV. That's the kind of shit that gun goes off. Somebody dies. He gets a hold of it, turns it back around on you, kills a partner. Now I I say I'd probably arrest him, but I mean, it'd be one of those things. I sure as hell would take his gun away from him, bitch slap him and then get some Lieutenant or somebody. and, And, but it's like Hollywood, I think does a disservice. And I'll tell you, that's was my rant here. Sorry. I'm off on a rant. People see stuff like that, and they think that's the way police work is really done. Yeah, they believe you what they on
1: TV, right? Well, it's no different than when DNA and all the science are really kicking off, and you had the CSI effect.
0: Mm-hmm. But you jerk. mean I can't get mm-hmm. DNA back in two hours, it's, and every case has DNA, and if you don't have it, obviously the guy's innocent. Yeah.
1: Yep. Absolutely. You know, and we obviously our interview rooms, everything is recorded. You know, video and audio. And we have DAs now that it's like, well, they didn't give a full confession on tape. I'm not going to charge this.
2: Have you ever met a DA that said they had enough evidence? They always want more, don't they?
0: (laughs) But you know but Patrick, you bring up a good point, though, too. Things have changed because— I was I was in a homicide trial one time, and I happened to know the defense attorney, who, by the way, speaking of ex-wives, he ended up being my attorney in my divorce. <laughs> I said, you're good. I want you for me now. But, but we were on there, and he was going, because I just got through testifying. He goes, do you have any evidence? And I looked at him and I said, I thought my testimony was evidence. And the judge says, that's right. But, you know, there was a time to where your your testimony, your observations, what you heard them say, that was evidence. And and it's we have come to that point where it's like, you don't have DNA, you don't have fingerprints, you don't have it on tape. It's like it didn't happen.
2: Yeah, there was. I had, a, I had an AUSA in, uh, I think it was in Miami, Southern District of Florida, that told me one time, the best evidence you can bring me is video, second best is audio, third best is an agent's testimony. I'm like, well, screw you too, pal. But you know what? When it's on video, it's kind of hard to dispute, isn't it?
0: It is. It is. Well, so... Let's kind of tie off on this because I want to get into some of your book stuff because you, you've got some very interesting things there. When you went through the academy, did was this any kind of a case study or did they walk you guys through it or talk about the need to, look, you can't just take what's at face value you need to drill down? Was there anything that came out of that that you were trained on specifically or was it more just anecdotal stuff you heard on the job?
1: It's on the job. In the academy, they, that was kind of taboo. They didn't talk about it at all. You know, it's kind of like the... <laughs> the Dahmer elephant in the room, really. Yeah. Uh, the fallout from that was incredible because one of the prosecutors wound up being, he quit being a prosecutor. He was so shook from the trial that he became a Jesuit priest. Wow. Then uh, Pat Kennedy, he stayed on the job for a couple of years. That was one of the
0: detectives, you said?
1: Yeah, that's the one that you know flings his keys at the mm-hmm. guy who just killed somebody. You know, he's just excellent, excellent detective. He's the one who, him and uh, Dubas are the ones who interrogated Dahmer. And he joined the Peace Corps. Really? Yeah. I mean, this, that whole trial, the whole case, it, it really affected a lot of people, but they didn't talk a whole lot about it.
0: You know, you get stuff like that and it's almost like the greatest generation in the world war II. My dad was a world war II vet. Vietnam didn't talk about it. You get a lot of people from that time, you know, they don't talk about it. Um, We had, uh, I think it was episode thirteen. Might have been uh, or Dave Riker. Uh, he was the lead investigator for the Green River Killers. Gary Ridgway, forty-nine homicides. I think, and then another three on top of that. Even to this day, he's, he 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 ended up being sheriff of King County. Ended up being a six-term congressman, member of Congress. And even when he was, I think he was seventy-two when we interviewed him. Even when we interviewed him emotionally, he started crying on some of these things when he thought about the victim and the impact that it had. I mean, it deeply affected him. He stayed on the job, but he, he went into a different position. But to your point, it affected him so deeply that 30 years later, you know, 40 years later, it brings tears to his eyes. Wow. You know, you know
2: that, that's the reason we want to bring the, uh, the law enforcement on here, just to give ourselves a, a shameless plug here. But it's for you guys to tell your stories, not for us to read a book about it and tell your story. We want to, we know, we want our listeners to hear firsthand what you went through out there. Because those that aren't in the law enforcement or military profession never see things like that you were seeing on a daily basis.
1: Well, I was. I interviewed two police psychologists on my podcast, and they called them paper cuts,
0: like death of a thousand
1: you know, it's cuts. Like, okay. You, yes, you know, you, and then something like Dahmer hits, and it's like. <laughs> now you got the machete coming at you. It's not like a little paper cut. Now, you know, on top of all the paper cuts, then you go through something huge like that. You know, where do you go from there? Well, how did
0: that change? Even though they didn't talk about it in the academy, which I th- they probably should have, but just, but, but on the job or even with the training and stuff, did it change how you guys, I mean, did some of your training officers talk about that specifically, Hey, look, here's why we need to go further on this or do this because of Dahmer. Was there any kind of like said downstream effect that uh, you saw in your training?
1: Not really. Just the, just the jokes is like, yeah, you better check that refrigerator. You never know what's going to pop out of there, you know, just stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But as far as like policy procedure, SOP, nothing like that. No.
0: But so he was arrested then, and I know that he was, you know, appeal was denied because he was killed in prison. So uh, which wasn't that, you know, because we're talking about, yeah, this was through 1991. And so he got killed the year before you got on. Um, I think, yeah, you got on in 95, you said, right? Yes. Yeah, 95. I guess, did, did what was the public's reaction to that? Even the, when you started on, was there still... Um, reactions to it? Was there still a you know a, a a memory of it? You know, or the you know they they had a long memory about it. Was what kind of impact did it have in the policing? Did it did it affect you at all when you came on, or was it still there?
1: Yeah, a little bit, but kind of what happened with the city of Milwaukee was it kind of stole its innocence, where before what Milwaukee was Laverne and Shirley, yeah, happy days, yeah. You know, that kind of stuff. And then Dahmer came along. Now when you hear Milwaukee and it's like, oh yeah, Jeffrey Dahmer.
0: And what was the beer company they were a part of?
1: Hassan oh,
0: uh, Schatz beer. Shots. Hasenfeffer yeah, Schmil Inc- Shamal Hassen Pfeffer Incorporated. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah, but it kind of stole the innocence from the city. You know, it's like, okay, now we have this monster roaming around. You know, it just yeah just it tarnished the image for a while. But as far as the general public, they have short memories. You know, it's, there's always a new crisis. There's always something new to bitch about for the, you know, the cops did this wrong or that wrong or whatever the case may be. There's always something new and shocking to come along. And there always was.
2: It's just like nine one one. you know, it galvanized our country, you know, solidified us into one country again. But how long did that last? (laughs) Not long at all.
0: Yeah. Uh, in fact, I remember too, Jeb Bush, when he was governor of Florida, Murph, uh, you, you'll find this out too, but they developed, he said, we've got people down here that have developed amnesia. They were getting their third hurricane and nobody was taking it seriously. It's like, yeah, you know, maybe we'll prepare, maybe we won't. And that's the thing. After a while, you're, it's either so much, you get amnesia about it, you know, or you you get desensitized to it. Uh, so, that's, that's, so let me ask you, who was the author again of the book you were talking about you interviewed? Annie Schwartz. What, when you talk with her, uh, and by the way, let's give a shameless plug, give a shameless plug for your podcast, because we've talked about it. So tell us what it is, where we can find it.
1: Uh, Cops and Writers. And that's on all your major platforms, you know, Apple, Podcasts, Spotify. I think I'm on like fifteen, sixteen different See now for platforms. Murph,
0: you gotta be careful. You mean writers like W-R-I-T-E-R S, not writers, R-I-D-E-R S, because he'll be looking for cops and writers <laughs> and it'll be some equestrian unit he'll find.
2: Uh, but let me tell you, Patrick only has the best guests on his show. The very
0: best. Well, that's debatable. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> you used to have standards. Till I heard one episode, um, <laughs> like uh, you know, have your opinion. What's his partner's yeah. name? Uh, so, I can't so how name, long but, you been uh, doing Cops and Writers? Well, like I said before, I I got the writing bug. When I mean, I, was the, I should have been more clear. The podcast. How long have you been oh, doing podcast? the podcast? Oh. Today? Uh,
1: I think it'll be close to two years in
0: February. And how many episodes are you up to?
1: Ninety-three.
0: So you do like kind of a, so you just basically do one a week. Yeah. Yep.
1: Yeah. I do a weekly.
0: Well, let's talk about that for a little bit too. So, um, let's talk about the cops and writers cause you're, you're, we'll find a couple of things about your career to talk about. You say like you're closing out, what made you pick the writing part of it? I mean, was it simply because you'd written that glorified PDF you said, and then you wrote the, the,
1: yeah, yeah. it just, I kind of got the bug. Out. I'm like, Hey, what I liked about it, I had these visions of being on a beach somewhere, typing away, you know, it, okay i'm gonna retire i'm gonna move to Florida and I'm just gonna write on a beach somewhere you know
0: well hold on a second i gotta i gotta poke a hole in your little balloon here because (laughs) one of the things people hate more than anything after all those years in law enforcement is fucking writing reports (laughs) half the time you got such and now uh, you spend all your time bitching about having to write reports and now you're telling me oh i got the writing bug well (laughs) where was the writing bug when you were having to write reports
1: all right i was a sergeant for 17 years so you didn't write shit
0: (laughs) (laughs) i wrote the important (laughs) reports i wrote the important
1: reports I wrote the. I was the one who had to do the use of force. You know when a cop had to, uh, you know, discharge their weapon and their OC, use their baton. You know, squad accidents, uh, uh, complaints. You know, Joe Q Citizen or Joan Q Citizen would come to the district saying, you know, officer did blah blah blah, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. That's the stuff that I was doing. I had the best job ever. I'll be the first one to say it. Being a street sergeant was the best job, no hands down. Nice all day long.
2: And here, here you're dreaming of going and sitting on a beach in Florida. And look at you now—you're sitting in Boston,
0: <laughs> babysitting a dog. Yeah,
1: she's she's <laughs> a good dog, aren't you, Frankie?
0: Uh, yeah. You so, but but your dreams now—you're you're sitting on. Uh, but you're still in Milwaukee, right?
1: I am still in Milwaukee, probably for the next year to two years. Then we're going to move to where? But hopefully, Florida. Uh, well West Coast. We come on down, brother. West Coast.
0: C- come on down. Yeah. The, well, he said West Coast, Marv. He doesn't want to be anywhere near you. So he's, you're going to be up there in the panhandle, or what are you talking about?
1: No, I, I like Naples. Naples, uh, Fort Myers. I'm glad you these.
0: clarified that for a minute. I <laughs> thought you said I like nipples. I'm going, go, what? <laughs>
1: Hurt, heads, he you get heads. out of the
0: gutter, boys. Jeez, I be... wasn't the one that was going the wrong place with the story when I said, stop. No, and you guys were thinking something else and all he was doing was farting. Don't tell me my mind was going into the gutter.
1: <laughs> it lives there, doesn't it? <laughs> but yeah, you know, I just kind of got bit by that bug and I like the idea of, okay, I can do this job anywhere. You know, Last year, I worked for an airline throwing bags, you know, loading and unloading airplanes, and I did it so I could have free travel. But they Mm -hmm. wanted me to work in the wintertime, too, and I'm like, no, that's not going to happen. Sorry, guys.
0: Uh, Oh, wait a minute. That's like hiring (laughs) a rookie. You mean I have to work weekends?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Well, I was seasonal, and when they interviewed me and when they hired me, I said, my happy Irish ass is not going to be out there at 4 o'clock in the morning. When it's twenty degrees below zero out on that tarmac. Schlepping bags. Yeah. Ain't gonna happen. In the summertime, I'll do it all day long. It was fun.
0: Funny you should mention that. My wife, when we moved out here, she she hasn't worked, I mean, for a lot of years now, but she had 28 years in at the police department. And she started working part-time at Starbucks. She's like, I work because I want to just to get out of the house, not because I have to. And then like anything else, you could see it just over time. Well, hey, can you just do this? Can you do this? Finally it oh, got yeah. down to the point. Hey, can you work weekends? And that was it. It was like, no, we're done here. Cause it went from working just a little bit and just part-time to like you were saying, Hey, now they, I, I can tell you if somebody wanted to throw me out on a tarmac at four o'clock in the morning. Uh, yeah, nah, no, and not winter. in Milwaukee either. Come on now, Florida. Yeah, sure. You know, but, uh, not Milwaukee. <laughs> yeah, no, it, nah,
2: man, it, it gets down to, you know, in the middle of the night, like it, it might get down to 50 degrees here.
0: <laughs> I don't know how you do it. You're burr. <laughs> uh, speaking of nipples, <laughs> 50 degrees. Um, just got to rub that in a little bit. <laughs> well, so let's talk about that. So you you wrote the important stuff. We get that. But um, so this two years out, why did you decide to do this? Why did you decide to pick, hey, I want to start, because you could have just sat and wrote a book, but you started kind of a community. You want to start kind of a resource, which is what your podcast is. So answer that, then I want to ask you about your podcast.
1: What happened was I started going to these conferences and... You know, I was just like a normal person there, but people would come up to me, hey, you're that cop guy, right? You're that cop guy. And I'm like, uh, yeah, everybody's <laughs> going to know. And they're like, hey, I've got this question about this. I got this question about that. And it just kind of mushroom. It just exploded from there. It just started growing and growing and growing. And it's like, hey, you know what? If you have a police question, ask Pat. You know, yada, yada. And I'm in these communities and they're like, you know what? You should write a book about this. You know, then I had some people that are a lot smarter than me that are in the business. And it's like, you'd make a killing. Was well, as a sergeant,
0: that's about. about 98% of the department, isn't it?
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh,
0: so, <laughs> <did> I, uh, <laughs> sorry, pal. You want to throw shit at me, I'll just turn around and throw <laughs> it right back at you. So I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. <laughs>
1: That's
2: okay. No thin skin here.
0: Hey, but you know it's funny you mentioned that too because we're talking about Thriller Fest. That's the annual one they do July in New yep. York. Um, that I've I've seen. I need I actually. I'm going to go to it. This is on my list of things. I'm going to go to it next year, July of 2023. I will be there. But I saw when I would. I've actually. Uh, you can download the recordings, you can pay for it. You can get some of the sessions that are recorded. And you know, one of the popular ones too was like the day before they would have some of these classes and they'd have an ATF guy come in and talk to Mm -hmm. them just about weapons. This is what they do. This is what they don't do. And by the way, Patrick, one of the things we do on Patreon, by the way, shameless plug, patreon.com slash game of crimes. When we do our annual nar- our monthly narcometer review, and we rate movies on a scale of one to 10 kilos or accuracy, authenticity, and believability, one of the things that always brings movies down is you do the shot count or you look at the weapon, and it's like, that is one magic <laughs> revolver, my friend. It fired 12 <laughs> times without having to reload. Or you've got a semi automatic that's supposed to be in, you know, a 13 round clip and it fires 97 rounds without reloading, oh, yeah. you know? Yeah, there's not a lot of realism in there. And that's the thing I think hurts most writers too is is they want to write about something – and I get it. Look, you, it's a free country. You can write about anything you want. But if you're going to write like police procedurals or stuff, at least like Michael Connolly did with Harry Bosch, at least he covered the L.A. crime. Beat. Right. You know, he was talking to those guys all the time. But it's that authenticity they call verisimilitude. Right. So when you were when you were teaching these folks, what was some of the biggest misconceptions you saw people have that were trying to write about cop stuff that they didn't understand that Mr. Aspat Pat O'Donnell, not O'Connell, <laughs> or if I got it right. O'Donnell, the Sarge. What did the Sarge, what 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 kind of things were you teaching well,
1: them? Some of the biggest misconceptions were some of the stuff is they thought detectives did everything. You know, they thought, that, okay, you have a homicide, say, you know, that's what you'd see on TV the most. And there'd be this small football team of detectives that would show up out of nowhere within seconds. And I'm like, no, <laughs> <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> cops are, you know, I mean, you kind of patrol cops are the first people there then a supervisor is either going to beat them or get them around the same time. And for, I mean, I've been to hundreds of homicides and the thing about it is you might get the detectives there within a half an hour to an hour. You know, the scene is contained, you know, you have also explaining what detectives are. They're investigators. They have a specific job Mm -hmm. and they're usually not getting into car chases or running down people, you know, running people down in alleys in the middle of the night. They're doing follow up, they're doing interviews.
0: That's what rookies yeah. are for. You want to get into a foot chase, yeah. get the rookie. Yeah, that, right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but um, there was a lot of misconceptions as far as that goes. Then, um, as far as when you could arrest somebody or what an arrest was, and you know, it's like, okay. I need you to come down to the station or I'm telling you to come down the station or I'm going to take you down to the station. Well, you could say no, unless you got probable cause to arrest somebody and take away their freedom. They don't have to do that.
0: Right. And see Pat right there. That's another thing too. I, uh, you, you, I've always got to tell people they said, well, you didn't have probable cause to pull me over. I don't need probable cause. I need reasonable suspicion. I need PC to arrest.
1: And there's, there's a lot of, Mm -hmm. you know, There was a lot of confusion with that. And, you know, don't leave town. I can't tell you not to leave town.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I love that in the old
1: movies. Don't leave town
0: without notifying us. You know, know,
1: I'm like, no. You know, and then as far as shootings go, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions with guns. You know, you're talking about like ATF. There's, you have a lot of writers that have never even held a gun before they don't you know they just see you know the hysteria on tv or the news or something where somebody is shooting a pistol and it's like flying out of their hands or whatever you know
0: or you shoot him with a 38 and it knocks the guy back yeah. 47 yeah, feet. yeah you know,
1: most people crumble when they get shot they they don't go flying they crumble you know they and you know it's so, and it depends on you know obviously what kind of bullet what the range is, what the trajectory is. We had a, a friend of mine that gets shot in the foot with an AK-47 at a traffic stop. They pull over a car that was fleeing. Guy comes out of the um, driver's side, just starts popping rounds off, blows part of his foot off, this poor copper. His partner chases down the bad guy, shoots him in the head with uh, Smith & Wesson uh, 40 Cal and M&P, and it bounces off the guy, bad guy's skull. I mean, knocked him unconscious, <laughs> but it didn't yeah, penetrate his skull.
0: And it didn't come in at the—that's the other thing, too. A lot of people—if it, it doesn't come in at the right angle, I mean, depending on where you hit, sometimes those skulls are hard. It's not that the round wasn't strong enough. It's just that the angle it came right. in at. I
1: mean, I can tell you a story. I had a busy night in, in the hood. I'm by myself. They like, start going to the shooting, and I'm like, all right. So I go and I'm like, ah, screw it. I'll just, you know, I'm not waiting for anybody. So I go, I walk up, I'm all being tactical. I got my gun out. And there's a guy sitting on the stoop where this shooting was supposed to be. And I look at him and I'm like, let me see your hands. He's totally cooperative. And he's like, you might want this. And I'm like, what? He said, this is the bullet. I'm like, huh? He got shot between the eyes. The bullet traveled between the skull and the skin and popped out the crown of his head.
0: When you said that, that this popped into, you remember those stories. I was a little rookie in Salina, Kansas, working District 1, 901, and we get called to a shooting one night, a guy named Stevie Thomas, and he's laying out there. I had just gone through EMT training. I'm a brand new EMT in addition to being a cop, and he's laying there, and EMS gets there about the same time um and so they start hooking him up and it, you know he was shot we know he's shot we see like an entrance wound so they hook him up they've got the defibrillator out so they put the the leads on him and they hook him up they say, it's a flat line start cpr so i start doing cpr well they had it hooked to paddles not leads so i'm doing cpr on a live guy <laughs> so let me tell you when you do cpr on a live guy the arms come up. He comes to. He comes to life pretty quick. Well, they take him to the hospital, and you know where they found his round. He got shot with the twenty-five. It did the same thing. It hit a rib and stayed under the skin and came all the way to the other side. Oh, that was that the bullshit meter going off because it usually doesn't go off that late into our That's podcast. The <laughs> That's the dog. The dog's going. That's bullshit. Um, but yeah, it went. It traveled all the way around his back and and was lodged on the other side. Yeah. And the surgeon just just basically made a little nick and pulled out the well, ground.
1: I, I remember I had a shooting where this is towards the end of my career. You get sent to the hospital for a gunshot victim. This guy was shot, I think, seven or eight times and it hit nothing vital. He's just laying there. He you know, was like a 20 year old kid. He was in the hood buying dope. And of course, he had this big story of, yeah, you know, I was just minding my own business and I got shot seven times. You know, it was like, no, you weren't. But, I mean, it was literally, here's your Snoopy Band-Aids and out the door you go like an hour later. And uh, then you go to the other <laughs> shooting where they're shot one time and they're deader than Elvis before they hit the ground. There's no rhyme or reason sometimes. It just happens. What are you doing to that dog?
0: <laughs> Frankie. You better feed that thing. If it starts <laughs> gnawing on you, pal, I don't know where to send help. Uh, uh, Somewhere in Boston. There was a picture one time, and if it, this was of quite a few years ago, but it was of a Marine. Um, that he had freaked out mentally, had flipped or something happened. He got a hold of something bad, but, um, they had shot him like eight, nine, 10 times with the 40 caliber and the dude was still coming oh, yeah. at him. And then you, then you turn. And so you see that it's like, I mean, they were hitting vital stuff. Then you turn around and you look at now somebody takes out a 22. Actually, it was a guy I went through DEA training with. Um, guy named Tony Patterson, Topeka PD, he got killed during the service of a search warrant because the guy, they knocked on the door. The guy saying he didn't hear him say police. Everybody said they said police. They knocked on the door. He thought he was being raided. And anyway, he shot through the door one time with the 22. That 22 went right above his vest, uh, underneath armpit, his armpit, yeah. and killed him.
2: Yeah. You know, when it's your time to yeah, go, it's, it's sad, you
1: know, but it does happen. There's do no about doubt
0: it. about it. Well, let's get off this morbid stuff and let's talk about something <laughs> uh, a little <laughs> bit what less morbid, which is...
2: Well, I want to ask you, before, before we move on to the next thing, I want to ask you, so have you been able to convert this into a monetary Well,
0: uh, I wrote
1: two books business? called Cops and Writers under my own name. And those sell fairly well. Mm-hmm. And then I just got picked up by a publisher to write fiction. And the the name of the series is called Brew City Blues. It's kind of a homage to Hill Street Blues. And I kind of, it's kind of a cop opera. You know, it's kind of a cop soap opera where you have one main character that's loosely based on me. And the first book in the series is field training, second book is probation, third book is choir practice. So it kind of takes him through, takes the reader through his, what he's been going through. And, you know, he's at District 5 in, in Milwaukee on late shift, you know, and like the shooting that I was telling you in the tavern, that's in there you know that that different stuff and you know and I added some stuff to give it a little more flavor that didn't happen to me but
0: you mean like a sergeant who actually takes calls and writes <laughs> reports oh <corks? ow. laughs> <laughs>
1: That's fiction. There's fiction you right did there for recon. you. How do you know that much about me? Jeez, <laughs> I just know the rank. <laughs> <laughs> the hardest working individuals. Mm-hmm. Let me tell
0: you. Well, let me tell you the other thing too. I used to make the lieutenants uh, pissed off because I'd look at them and I'd I'd go I'd bypass them and go to the captain. They go, don't you know the chain of command? I said, obviously, sir, you don't know the history. Lieutenant is actually a term that stands for in lieu of. In lieu of the ca- the captain was here. I just went. I just went directly to the captain. That's not the way it works. <laughs> Okay. Sorry, yeah. you can't fight history, sir. I'm no. sorry. That's the way it was written.
2: But there's, I know that uh, I'd called you about a um, former police officer that's over in Micronesia that's a friend of ours that's looking to write a book and and um, he knows he's looking for guidance and that's, I called Pat. It took like, you know, two seconds for him to say, give me my number, give me my email address. Let's talk. I don't not. think he's contacted yet, but
0: yes, he, he is, is on the other side of the world. Yeah. Micronesia.
2: Yeah. That's part of the Lost Clipper thing.
0: That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Is he over there for that?
2: Uh, he's the guy who was the Hawaiian police officer that, when the U.S. decided to impose the rule of law in Micronesia, uh, they asked for volunteers from Hawaiian police departments, and he volunteered for a one or two year assignment and ended up marrying a
1: local <laughs> chieftain's daughter. And <laughs> that could be a book,
0: really.
2: Oh, he's phenomenal. He's a, a super guy. You'd love him. I mean, he's cop through. Here's and through. another
0: <laughs> popular misconception. <laughs> because look at that. The dog brought <laughs> you a ball. <laughs> <laughs> Frankie. Bring, beware of strangers, bring gifts.
2: Yeah. Shame our listeners can't see this. That's kind of cute.
0: Um, I got, I got, somebody reached out to us, Murph, um, but I, I've had, to, here's another misconception too. Hawaii 5 does really not exist. There is no such thing as a state police organization in Hawaii. Why? What? Because there's, <laughs> cuz yeah so when they did Hawaii 50 was the real Steve McGarrett, you know, Jack Lord and stuff. So I had somebody say one time I was a part of the real Hawaii 50. I said there was no 50. There's only 49 state police, you know, or state criminal investigative agencies. Hawaii does not have one. I said name it. What is what's it called? So that was one of the other um, ones that was kind of a uh-huh. misconception. They'd watch Hawaii 50 and think, "Oh, there really is a state police organization." Huh? No.
2: No, good stuff. But this, but I love the fact that you're doing this because you know Pat and I have had this conversation before uh, when we were talking about Bill. How many of you and I get calls all the time from people, you know, sp- primarily police officers. Hey, I'm thinking about writing a book. Can I pick your brain? Well, that takes about 20 seconds because we did ours ass backwards. You know, they did the Marco series and then we wrote a book. And I tried writing it. I I sat down for like six hours one day and just wrote my little butt off. Waited until the next morning, <laughs> read, and I thought, what a crock. <laughs>
1: it was horrible. Well, <laughs> and so I, we cut had teeth, I cut my teeth on the other books before I wrote those books. So it wasn't flying blind, and it wasn't my first you know, rodeo.
0: Well, Steve's first chapter was See Pablo, see Pablo run, <laughs> Steve chase Pablo. Good, Steve. Good, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> run Pablo, run. Pablo not running. Shocker spoiler, Pablo's dead. He's <laughs> room <wrong> temperature. <laughs> crap Pants. By the way, Steve, December pants. of ninety three. Um yeah. Uh strangely around the same time uh, as Dahmer, when he was convicted, I think. Yeah. Convicted, and then he was killed a year later. So anyway, I digress. Uh first true digression. Uh so we have a drinking game. If I digress or say back to our regularly scheduled podcast, you get to take a drink. Hey, but keep talk go ahead.
2: Well, I was going to say, this is you talk about drinking with Pat. You watch it because he's you know first generation immigrant from hey. Ireland. So mom and dad came well, over. So,
0: so we'll be talking. I tell you, one of my favorite songs. Uh, wherever you go around the world, you find an Irish pub. Have you heard that one? It's by the Irish mm-hmm. Kings. I was Just go but go to true. YouTube. Yeah, it's like there's one in Honolulu. There's one in uh, Moscow too. Four of them in Sydney and a couple in <laughs> oh, Kathmandu. Cool. So whether you sing or pull a pint, you'll always have a job because wherever you go around the world, you'll find an Irish pub, which is yes, pretty much true. It is true. Thank goodness! Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's let's go back, as they say. Let's go back a wee bit there, lad, and talk about uh, let's talk about the the cops and writers. So, as you're doing your last two years of getting out of this thing and thinking about writing full time, um, how does what does that change for you in terms of your thinking about? Is it a hobby? Are you treating it like a hobby? Are you looking go now? This has got to be a way of life. I mean, how do you how do you turn it from a hobby into something like Steve was saying? How do you monetize
1: it? It's interesting you say that because it was a hobby at first, but I had a buddy that was working on his PhD, another sergeant that wrote this post apocalyptic book. He threw it up on Amazon, and he made like ten thousand dollars in one year on it. And I'm just like, holy cow, that's people make money. Then I went to the first 20 books to 50k uh facebook groups conference in vegas it's mostly independent authors that go to that there's hybrid and there's published too and i'm just having beers with a guy whose wife went and got her phd she was going to be a professor at penn state she was on track for that she started writing medieval scottish romance and he showed me how much money she was making and i'm like holy shit it's more than she would be making as a professor so she stopped all the professor stuff and she's a full-time writer now so i was thinking to myself that stuck in my head i'm like people can make money doing this you have to be smart about it you have to have a a good work ethic that's the thing it's like i'm retired my wife's laughing at me she said you're working harder now that you're retired than you were before you were retired yeah, like Aren't I said, shift, sergeant in a police department's the best job.
0: Well, Pat, yeah, Pat was working on. He wanted to make sure he didn't wasn't working on wife number three, and he realized when he started delegating all of his stuff to his wife, it didn't work that way anymore. Honey, you're retired. Fucking do it yourself.
1: Yeah, I'm not trying for a three peat. No, no, no. One divorce is more than enough. Thank you very much.
0: Whereas a buddy of mine yes, who was, is. I think, working on his was on his fifth oh. wife. He never introduced her by name. He said, I'm introducing you to the future plaintiff number five, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which did not make her no, happy either. I, I don't so. think that would. <laughs> I, was gonna say, I wonder if he's
1: out and listen to what he says. <laughs> yeah. That might be a clue. right? You there, know, man,
0: yeah, we, we don't listen to, you clues. know, you should, we're tone you you deaf a lot. You are a detective lot, yeah. or
1: an investigator. You know about Clues. <laughs> clues, yes. <Clues. yeah. laughs>
0: So, uh, but yeah, but talk about that. So you, you started looking at watching the money we made. So, you know, what'd so you do?
1: I started a website. I started a Facebook group and my Facebook groups, you know, when I first started, it was me, my editor and a couple of friends and it, it blew up pretty good. I've got what, 5,600 people in there right now. And I'm like, well, I'm going to be a consultant. You know, I'm going to help people write their books. Well, what I discovered, and some people again that are much smarter than me that are in the business, they're like, that's very time consuming. You're gonna to have to charge a lot of money. And I'm like, okay. But then I'm thinking to myself, a lot of people that are asking these questions are newer authors that don't have a lot of money. And I don't want to gouge these people, you know. And so
0: not yet anyway. <laughs> Wait till they get rich and then say you owe me 10%. You know, I'm your agent.
1: <laughs> so that didn't go so great. You know, it's like The last two books, you know, they sold decently, you know, not there were um, Amazon bestsellers, which, you know, I'll take it, but, you know, not New York times or USA today or anything like that, but
0: not not exactly.
1: And then the podcast kind of feeds into that. So I got the, the, the website, the podcast, the Facebook group, and I was approached by somebody to go into this series, you know, what I was talking about before, writing this fiction. So hopefully that will make some money and we'll see where it goes. It's
2: it's it's amazing how many cops are writing books right now or former cops. I mean, you know, we had Sherry Foster on our show, who is a re, former GBI and retired DEA agent. In fact, uh, Morgan, we had Connie and I had dinner with her a couple of nights ago. She's in town. And uh, her book is now at the editor. And you know why it is,
0: Murph? Because we got on her ass, TikTok, TikTok, you know, the time. (laughs) And then I got on her ass because she introduced me to the editor she's using, the one I was telling you about before we went on Mm -hmm. there, Patrick. I actually got farther, faster with him than she did. And so I was rubbing her nose (laughs) in it and going, hey, you know, uh, I'm almost done. Here I am. You know, I'm writing, because I would write. Once you get started writing, you know, as you probably guys see, uh, my writing and my verbal skills, I can, I can talk a lot. I can write a lot. So, uh, I was writing 2000 words a yeah, day.
1: That's decent. You know, when were you doing it? Like right away in the morning when you woke up or.
0: No, I, for me, it was one of those things I'd have to think about it for a while. I started doing a little, um. My routine was, I, I've kind of took a hybrid of stuff. I know some people say they get up in the, the early in the morning when there's no distractions and do stuff. My mind doesn't work that way. So one of the things I, one of my routines I always did is, is in the morning, I only read business books. So I read for like 30 minutes. I have a set of routines I got to start my day with because I'm OCD and ADD and all that other good stuff. By the way, do you know what CDO is?
2: We didn't know that.
0: Yeah, but... You know, do you guys know what CDO, uh, CDO is?
2: CDO—that's that's, somebody's obsessive compulsive. It yeah, it's OCD. Order. Yes,
0: that's CDO is OCD <laughs> in order. Um, but no, but so at night, what I do is I read fiction. So I'm like right now I'm reading the Gray Man series. on book number seven of Mark Greeny. But I read all the David Baldacci. You know, I've read a bunch of stuff. And then during the day, I get these ideas. So I put them down into a book. And I mean, actually, I have it right here. So what I do is I take this book and I say, well, I already kind of have an outline for the chapter. But I say, okay, here's what I want to do in this next chapter. And then I write it kind of during the day. Here's what I want to do. Then I sit down like maybe three, four o'clock in the afternoon. And then I can just I can just crank it out. I can crank out 2,000 words in maybe, you know, an hour and 45 minutes. Oh, wow. That's really good.
2: So how much is 2,000 words? Is that like three yeah, pages? Probably about six or seven. That's 2,000 words.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's like a chapter. Yeah. I was trying to write a chapter a day is what I was trying to do. And figuring that you write 2,000 words and you're going to have to edit that. Stephen King, his book, a uh, seminal book called On Writing Memoirs of the Craft, his formula is a f- second draft equals first draft minus 10%. So you always, you, I mean, you write more than what you need because I save a lot. I know I'll save a lot of this and take it into the next book. I'm at 173,000 words and I, I need to target first book only needs, should only be, should be maybe 100,000, but you can get by with 120. So that's, I, I got to cut out 50,000 words, which means a lot of this is going to go into the second yeah. book. You
1: know, Tom Patterson. Yeah, his big thing was, you know, every paragraph should be staccato and no more than like 11, 1200 words. Just, you know, keep, keep that pace going. Just keep it going. James Patterson, excuse me.
2: As our regular listeners know, once Morgan starts talking, if he writes as much as he talks, he can knock out like 80,000 <laughs> words, you know, in a, in probably 45 minutes. Yeah.
0: And... <laughs> Eventually somebody's <laughs> going to buy this, and I'll be sitting on a beach going "fuck you, Murph," while you're while you're slapping it, trying to go talk somewhere. I'm going to be getting uh, one of my fancy drinks sent to me, We're wearing my Tommy Bahama. Thank you, Marlon Carlson.
2: You're sitting in Ashburn, Virginia, saying that anyway. Time yeah, get I know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Hey, well, let, let's let's kind of, you know, we, we've we've kind of come f- kind of full circle, but let, let's talk about where things are going. Let's talk about this book series. So how far are you into it? When can we expect to see the first uh, book?
1: The first book is on pre-order. That launches November 19th.
0: And where do we find this at?
1: Amazon. It's going to be Amazon exclusive.
0: And can they get to it through your site? Is it copsandwriters.com? Yeah, I
1: don't have that up yet. Just go to Amazon. Okay, and what do they search for? uh, Brew City Blues.
0: B-R-E-W, Brew City Blues. Blues.
1: November 18th, excuse me, November 18th. The first book goes live. The second book goes live December 30th. The third book goes live February 15th or 16th, somewhere in that ballpark.
0: So let's talk about your process. Right now, Steve, you—he's got a—it's tw- twenty books. I think you said, right?
1: Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I—I I have a. I'm probably gonna. We'll see where this goes. You know, if people buy it or not. <laughs> That—that's the number one. You know, so at least three, maybe six, maybe more. Yeah, how long did it take you to write three books? I wrote the first book in about a month and a half, a little over a month. So I—I I write every day, and write
0: see that's the secret right there you got to write, yeah, write
1: every day and like yesterday I got the edits back for the first book you know from the editor and there's a lot of going back and forth with that so that's chewing up a lot of my writing time you know I did that for what six hours yesterday and it's tedious and it's monotonous and just that part sucks it that's the part where you start hating your book <laughs> you don't want to see it anymore you're like oh get this thing away from me But it's nice when it's all finished.
0: Well, that's the editor I'm working with. And I was talking with him and said, how do I know when I'm done? He says, you'll know when you're done, when you're sick. You can't look at it again. It's like you're (laughs) done. And so like, I mean, it takes a while to read 173,000 words. So I read the first pass just to, now that I've got everything in context, because I started the first part of the book well before I finished it. But now I'm on a clip, but it's like, but then the second pass is start looking for, uh, I got to start cutting, got to start cutting words. And I'm finding the obvious errors. And he's, he, you know, he was saying, it'll probably with your first book, probably take you five or six passes until you've done everything you can. And when you've done everything you can, that's when you send it to me. Cause then that time it's no longer your book anymore is what he was saying. It's kind of like, it's my book, but he had a great saying though. He said, look, I can fix a bad page. I just can't fix a blank page. (laughs) If you guys are thinking about writing, just like one author said, vomit, then clean up. That was his, that was his uh, (laughs) approach, you know, just throw up on the page, clean it up later. But if you don't get it on the page. There's nothing to edit. You don't got to worry about it.
1: That's very, very true. But mine, you know, I think we're going to be between seventy to eighty thousand words for per book.
0: All right. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about this. I mean, you talked a little bit. Let's talk about your protagonist, which is uh, inside the Beltway or inside the baseball, inside baseball terms for who's the hero of the story? Who's your main protagonist? His name is Michael
1: Collins, surprisingly Irish. I know that. that yeah.
0: Surprisingly, why is <laughs> it not why is it not Michael Collins? <laughs> see (laughs)
1: Michael Collins okay surprisingly Irish Michael Collins is the protagonist um he has some personal tragedies that he has to deal with he was in the army and he's starting fresh and new in Milwaukee as a police officer
0: why did he pick Milwaukee
1: uh I believe it was he has roots here in Milwaukee his folks live in Chicago my folks live in Chicago spoiler alert uh (laughs) and he 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 lived in Milwaukee before he went off to join the army.
0: So if you were looking at the protagonist of uh, your character, how how I mean everybody still writes with a little bit of themselves in it. How you know, how close do you resemble him or does he resemble you? You know, 10%, 20, 30, you think?
1: Oh, probably more than that. Probably hmm, 60, 70%. I was never in the army, but my son was, so I always picked his brain and you know what it's like, you know, if you're in any kind of police organization, you're surrounded by veterans. So, you know, you're with them 24 seven, It feels like, you know, it's like you start to pick up on the lingo, you know, the mannerisms. And like my, my son was in the army for five years. He did one tour in Iraq. He was a a cavalry scout. So there's a fun job. Yeah. So, you know, obviously I could pick his brain and I pick up on the culture and stuff like that from all the people that I've worked
0: with. So, um, and where did you get the idea for it? I mean, was it something that had been brewing for a while or, you know, in terms of the character and the way you wanted to approach this, where did it come from?
1: You know, I had two characters in my head for two distinct different books and I'm collaborating with somebody and I told him both of them. And he said, oh, this one for sure. And I'm like, okay. And that's the great part about a collaboration where I have an actual sounding board where Most writers, it's you and your keyboard and that's it.
0: Because I'm interested too. We talked a little bit about this beforehand, but what's your process? I mean, what is your, um, for folks who are thinking about getting into writing and if they want to write, I mean, whether it's cop stuff or related stuff, but what are a couple of the lessons you can give people when you start thinking, hey, if you want to get into writing, here's three or four, here's three or four tips that are, you know, it's like, you know, who do you read? I've read a lot of Stephen Pressfield, obviously read Stephen King, done some of the master classes, David Baldacci, James Patterson, uh, Dan Brown. You know, and I I pick and choose from those things, but if you're going to, as you work with people or you're giving advice, like at these conferences, what are some of the things you've learned? What are Pat's lessons over the years? Kind of like you did from divorce. What are, what are, what are, what are Pat's lessons for writers? So you don't end up being divorced and in the poorhouse?
1: All right. Um, everybody, I I forget the statistic, but it was like 80 or 90% of people in the general population say they have a book in them. You know, they have a story that they want to tell. That's great. That's fabulous. most people never hit the publish button. Most people never do it. If you're gonna think about being a writer, you have to think think to yourself, what do you want out of this? Is this a hobby? You know I helped a um friend of a friend that went through Marine Corps boot camp during Vietnam, and he wanted to write a book about it, not to make a bunch of money or sell a bunch just to kind of memorialize it for his kids and his grandkids and his grandkids' kids. They could see what grandpa did in Vietnam, you know, and it started in boot camp. And he didn't spend a lot of money on a cover or anything like that, but I helped him get it up on Kindle. Now it's there forever. So you have to ask yourself, what do I want out of this? Okay, do I want to make a lot of money? You know, do I want to quit my day job? Okay. First off, don't burn the boats. You know, don't quit your day job right away. People, they have this very glamorous idea of what writing is. And it's a very tough business and it's hard to make money. But if you do it smartly and you have purpose and you have a very good work ethic and maybe a little bit of luck, yeah, you can make some money doing this. But start with the basics. Okay, first ask yourself, you know, it's like, what do I want out of this? Do I want to be the next James Patterson or is this a hobby? Okay, I want to be the next James Patterson. Okay, you're going to work seven days a week. You, it works best if you have a specific time of day that you write. You know, a lot of people get up at 4 o'clock in the morning. I, I interviewed a guy that is an appellate um, court judge in Illinois. He gets up at 3.30, 4 o'clock every morning before he goes into work and, and is a judge. And but it's working for him because he he, he he collaborates with James Patterson, David Ellis is his name. He's a great writer. Uh secondly, read what you want to write. Read that genre. You know, if you want to write mysteries, you better start reading some mysteries and start picking up on the tropes. Okay, you know what happens? What are like the main tropes in a suspense? you know, or uh romance. Okay. Romance, there better be a happily ever after or else nobody's going to read your book. The second book there has to, there are certain tropes that you have to hit. That doesn't mean you're copying everybody, but if you want to be this unique snowflake in this genre, it's not going to work very, your or at least your chances aren't as good. And, and then start with the basics. You When people are scrolling, you know, a lot of people just scroll on their phones or on the computer, and they're looking at a little thumbnail of your book cover. It better be good. You know, they're going to look, they're going to, they will judge your book by its cover. And it should meet genre expectations. If you're, if you have, like, an espionage book or whatever... You know, a lot of them, you, there's like a silhouette of a person yeah. with a gun. Oh, like holding
0: hand. a gun, absolutely. It's yeah. kind of like the James Bond 007 exactly. thing. Exactly.
1: So if you don't have something like that, and if I can't see after one or two seconds what this book is about by looking at the cover, I'm, I'm just going to keep scrolling.
0: Yeah, if you got a picture of Fabio in the front cover, <laughs> it's probably not going to sell well in the thriller section. <laughs> yeah.
1: You never know. Maybe Fabio's got a Well, maybe milwaukee,
0: but I don't know about you <laughs> <laughs> fabio you're old geez oh Oh, you were saying romance (laughs) guess whose picture basically was used on a lot of those romance ones fabio fabio
1: yeah all the harlequin stuff that's right yeah um second is where people eyes go to is the blurb the book description it's very important that first off you get a hook you know it's like okay Morgan is in a life and death chase to, you know, get the codes for the atomic bomb that's about to go off or And whatever. his
0: partner, Murph, instead of calling 911, yeah. called 199 and the world blew up. Thanks, Murph.
2: There you go. There you go. I'm here for you. So,
0: Steve, call 911. What was that again? Slow down. I got to write this down. So try to get the hook
1: and have, it, you know, have that hook at first and then a brief description but don't write the book in the book description. That's where a lot of people falter, a lot of writers. You know, it should be, you know, it's like, okay, this person has done X, Y, and Z. Give them, give the reader a reason to be interested in this book.
0: It's kind of like a trailer for a movie. You don't want to put the whole movie in the trailer. You want a trailer that they, so like the blurb is, here's your two or three sentences that tells you what it is. Now the trailers, ah, uh, here's, gives you a better flavor of what it is but they cut it in such a way to create so many questions. The only way to answer them is you got to watch the movie.
1: And at the end, you know, state a question. Is Morgan going to save the world on time? Is his partner going to be asleep? Not if it depends on Murph calling
0: 911. One nine nine. Here we go. So
1: Have I got you. Have your blurb squared away. That's very important. And then with uh, Kindle books, they have that, uh, look inside feature where you just hit and you know what your first chapter should draw the person in you know if if they get that far into your book or okay they looked at the cover hey i like this guy's cover okay the the book description's good all right now i'm gonna hit that button there and i'm really close to buying if it's you know my cat is asleep on my computer and you know the world is just fine nobody's gonna buy that book no yeah, you know, so right. you, you got to have a compelling draw into it, you know, right away. So that's, that's the secret sauce. That's, you know, get the basic stuff down first to get, to hook that reader. And we're talking about series, you know, there's a lot of whale readers out there that read like a book a day sometimes. Oh, oh know, boy. Just, I don't know how they do it. I, I don't have the bandwidth, but those are the ones that they won't even buy a book until there's like three books in a series because they know that they can just keep on, you know, consuming it. And reviews, there's mixed thoughts on reviews. Uh, Some people count, like, it's like, oh, yeah, that guy's got, like, 14,000 reviews. That's great. That person there has 10 reviews. Nah, not so great. You know, but it's very subjective, and, but it's social proof that the book is decent. You know, so getting those reviews and getting it and the way you line that up is you have to ask people, you know, if you're new and you're starting, you have to ask them. It's like, hey, you know, here's an advanced reader copy of my book. I would appreciate an honest review. Honest review. Yeah. Right. And if you don't ask, most of the time it doesn't happen. You know, so that's really important. So those are the basics that I would tell a new writer, but it has to start with, what do you want out of this?
0: What's your goal? And I told, when he said, my editor asked me, I learned this lesson a long time ago. I didn't say, it wasn't, I want to write a book. I said, I want to be published. That was my goal. There's a difference between writing a book and being published. Being published, anybody can write a book, but to go through, like you say, all the iterations, the draft reviews, the edits, the bleeding. Like one guy say, writing is very easy. You just open up a vein and bleed all over the page. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. It's not It's not easy, but that's the reason why there's a lot of people who want to write, but very few who actually not only write a book and actually type the end, you know, at the end of the book, but actually get it published. So,
1: Well, you'd be surprised by all the people that I know that have written the book. They have a cover. They got the blurb. And they're frozen, like deer in a headlight. They won't hit that publish button. They're scared. What to What are death. they
0: just imposter? You know, imposter syndrome. They just don't think they're supposed to be a published author, or what? I th- I think it's part of that. And it's, you know, what
1: when you hit, you know, that publish button, you put yourself out there. Unless you're using a pen name you know, you're opening yourself up to all kinds of trolls, all kinds of BS. You open the with. kimono,
0: unzip the fly. We can come up with all sorts of, you know, uh, yes. uh, analogies, but yeah, that's the whole point is you, you really do expose yourself out there now that I want to ask a question cause we're going to have to wrap this up. Um, but you said that you were writing one under your name. Are, have you got, have you, are you, have you decided on a pen name or obviously you have, if you're going to write under one?
1: Um, I've written under two pen names before. But the latest books are going to be under my name, and the Cops and Writers books are under my name.
0: Now, why did you use pen names for the other books?
1: The first one, the car sales one, was, <laughs> like I said, it's a glorified PDF. And I, being in law enforcement, any kind of outside employment, you have to have approval from the chief of police. Oh. So I used a pen name because I didn't want to go through that
0: BS and it's not like you made a ton of money and retired off no, of that pdf, right?
1: Not at all. Not at all.
0: <laughs> I wouldn't call that outside employment. That it, it's not like having a job. I, I I lost money on this thing. I didn't make money.
1: But you know how it goes where it's like, okay, Pat did x, y or z. It's not that bad. It's not that egregious, but man, he he has outside employment and he didn't notify us. He didn't go through the chain of command. You're supposed to write this you know, memo to your captain and the captain has to forward up the chain to the chief and the chief is is the only person that can say yay or nay to that outside employment.
0: Well, now we've learned something about not the real Patrick O'Connell, because he's (laughs) writing under the name Patrick O'Donnell. (laughs) Uh, Hey, see, I I was trying to give you a pen name right from the start, man. I was trying to help you disguise who you really were. No one would
1: ever figure that out either. Nobody. Well, just
2: make it it's Sean.
0: Sean. Well, that's like Batman. All, I mean, our Superman. All he had to do was take off a pair of glasses, and all of a sudden, he's Superman. It's like, go, please, really, really. <laughs> One <laughs> pair of glasses, and everybody's flummoxed. Nobody can figure out who the dude is. It's amazing. It's totally cool. I like him. Well, hey, let's let's bring this to a close. Let's just do. Let's finish off by shamelessly pimping you out and uh, giving you gratuitous uh, shout out So, tell us where can people find you? Where can they find your stuff? And how can they get a hold of you? Just just give us the whole blurb. Just vomit on us. Go.
1: All right. I've got the the Facebook group is Cops and Writers. My website is Cops and Writers. My podcast is Cops and Writers. You see, there's, there's a pattern for me. You guys are like ex-cops. You know how <laughs> hold this works.
0: On. Give, give me one more and I may be able to detect a pattern. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if you want to email me, sarge at copsandwriters.com. There you go. Sarge at copsandwriters.com. Wow.
2: Hey, and listen to his podcast. He has some really, really interesting guests, not just because we were on there, but um, I looked at some of the other people we have on there. you got some well, great. Thank
0: you very
1: much for here. that, um, Steve. But now Morgan's got to come on the show.
0: Well, dude, if I do, I'm just going to blow up your numbers. I don't know if I should, uh, you know, do that yet until I'm ready. So
2: <laughs> yeah, right. talk, talk, about, talk about vomiting. I think I am right here. Oh, uh,
0: yeah. yeah, yeah. This is – well. Anyway, hey, guys, we kind of took a different tour this time because this was – I mean, it had some good stories in there, and I didn't realize we were going to get that close to Dahmer. and That's what made me think. Yeah, with Tim Stommel, um, that's where he was for three years beforehand. So it's, it's a, obviously a very small world, but hey, look. This is interesting because obviously that's something I'm involved with right now. I've got some deadlines for me to hit because I need to start on my next book in December. So I've got to start working on my outline, but I've got to get this draft and, you know, everything finalized into the editor. So um, Sherry, TikTok, TikTok, it's, you know, I've got the same uh, clock ticking now, but uh, hey, first of all though, Hey man, it was great. We had like, before Murph got on, you got on early. We had like good 20 minutes. We're just going back and forth talking about the craft and writing and just impressive stuff, man. Good stuff. And the, you know, kudos to you for being able to take your law enforcement career and transition into something like this, where you are still helping people. I mean, you still haven't given it up. You're still helping people.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Good Good stuff. Hey, but hold on though, because you get to hang with us as we do the outro, because see, now we're doing this all together. All right. Because I forgot to ask you though, in the beginning, so Folks, pretend we're way at the beginning. I forgot to ask you, are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the Game of Crimes, Patrick O'Donnell? Yes. Okay, see, now I will cut that into the beginning, and now we'll do the outro. (laughs) So hey, we hope you guys enjoyed this little episode. If you do, go to that thing they call Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Hit those five stars, you know, whether it's in Japanese, Farsi, German, Einstein, Drei, Fier, Fitz, is it? Something like that. Uh, Uno, dos, tres, cuatro, cinco. You know, Murph knows a little bit of Espanol there. Um, just go hit those five stars. Count the five. That's the number of stars you give us. Head on over to com for more info about the show. We're definitely going to be linking to uh, Patrick O'Donnell, his real name, not his nom de guerre, which is Patrick O'Connell, we don't want to confuse everybody, so Patrick O'Donnell, we'll be linking to all of his stuff over there, so go to Podcast.com. follow us on that thing they call the social media on the interwebs, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram, head on over to paypal.com, just use our email, GameOfCrimesPodcast at gmail.com or paypal.me. Hey, I know Steve knows the answer to this, but let me ask you, Patrick, where do you have to be, where do you have to be, where do you have to be? You have to be on Patreon, right? Yes, you do. See, even even Patrick O'Donnell, the writer of Cops and Writers, knows you have to be on there. So yeah, head on over to patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Do all that fun stuff with us. And uh, you know, just hang tight with us because we love your guys' input. We love the fact that you guys hang out with us. And right, Murph, we are, we were at that time of place. So uh, what do we tell people? We say we thank them. And what else do you got to say? Anything?
2: No, uh, um, I'm sorry, Mark. My, <laughs> my wife just came in and gave me a I think we're getting ready to lose power. Yeah, so if I disappear, but thank you guys very much. Uh, Pat, it's been a true honor to have you here on the show. We got to say this real quick.
0: <laughs> if Murph disappears, that sounds a little more ominous. Are you My at the tent? Just... <laughs> is the generator on? What's going, what's going on. on here?
1: Is there a solar know, flare know, or is there an yeah. EMP? <laughs> It's a beautiful afternoon.
0: I think the mower's about to cut through your power line, but hey, look guys, no, but this is good stuff. We'll put all this online, but we want to thank you guys once again for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, and cop-friendly, writer-friendly Patrick O'Donnell. New book series coming out. You got to go check it out at copsandwriters.com, podcast, Game of Crimes.